It's the same old story. It's been a long day at the job, or maybe it's just starting to feel long. And you feel that urge to stretch your legs and get a little bit of a break. You walk down the street, or maybe you get behind the wheel of your car, and you feel the weight begin to lift. You walk through the doors, and the sound of the place starts to clear the air. You get a table, you order your drink, you listen to the sounds of the bar, and soak in the conversation. Welcome to the TNE Speakeasy, with your hosts, Eric, Isaac, and Caleb. Listen in as they discuss the 1986 film, Aliens. Here we are, once again, returning to our James Cameron series for the the second episode, covering Aliens. And I'm very excited to be here talking about Aliens. These three movies, Alien 1 and then Aliens, and then Alien 3 are my actually my favorite trilogy. So. Hey, you forgot uh, a few others, at least three others. Well, I just mean those three, because those are the three that are the original Ripley. Okay. After that point, she dies, and then, yeah, we get other stuff that's not hey, spoilers. fully related. Uh, it's been, what, it's been 30, 30 years? Expiration date. <laughs> Since? That's story of limitations. Since Alien 3 came out? Wow. Wow, thanks for making me feel old. I can't even remember what year that was. Yeah, no, that that wow, that is old. Yeah, I think it is. Pretty sure it's ninety-two. Wow, thirty years. Goddamn. Yeah, yeah. But anyway, <laughs> but aliens. Um, I wanted to start with you, Eric, because I was curious. Um, did you see this in the theater? Is this a movie they have like a ton of history with? Oh, or? sadly, no. I did not get to see it at the mm-hmm. theater, but I do remember very well the first time I saw it. Um. Because it was one of those situations where I was with family and the adults went out to the video store and this was like a new release at the time on video and they brought it back um, and I think I had seen Alien before but I didn't I didn't I didn't know it that well the original Alien but I had seen it before so I, I had fragmented memories of that going into this but I just remember they got it from the video store. They played it when they got home and everybody like extended family. We just all watched it together. And that was my first experience. And it's always been gangbusters like right from the get go. Yeah. Oh, and just cause this is the uh, Cameron series. Do you remember if you saw Terminator before this one or if you came in, this was your first Cameron film. Hmm. When you put it that way, this was probably my first Cameron experience because I don't think I saw Terminator before this. I saw Terminator soon after this, but I think it was my first Cameron. Yeah. Yeah, and I'll just say for me, this I believe this was my first Cameron movie as well. Although, of course, many years later after it came out. But, but how about you, Isaac? Uh, well, first off, hey, Eric, welcome to our series, our once again new series in the mm-hmm. making still. Um, welcome, ladies and gentlemen, those in between unaffiliated. Um, Eric, just quickly, what did you think of Terminator, uh, 1984? Oh, just, of course, I mean, always loved, always loved. I, I was telling Caleb, 
I can't remember if it was on a podcast or just during the in-between off-mic times, but I was telling him about, you know, a lot of my memories of movies from the 80s and 90s, um, especially 80s, were shaped by the movies that they would constantly reshow on free television in those days. And I was telling him how it was weird how usually it was always the sequel and not the original that they would show on television. They would always show Star Trek 2. They would always show Airplane 2. They would always show Jaws 2. Um, like the list just goes on and on of movies that they would always show part 2 usually. But with Alien, it was one of the exceptions to the rule where they always showed Aliens. Wait, Alien or Terminator? Oh, Terminator. No, no, Terminator? Mm. Oh yeah, that was another exception to the rule. I'm sorry, Aliens was right because that was the sequel. No, Terminator, sorry. The original, they always showed it on television. The the okay. sequel, practically never. Yeah. Um, so Terminator was like one of the few exceptions to the rule. Well, because that's in the 90s. <laughs> right, right. Oh, yeah, yeah, I know. But so Terminator was just one of those movies that was always on. And it was just like must-see TV anytime, any day. Hell yeah. Yep. Yeah, I don't know if it was just cheaper to get the rights for that one. But yeah, it was just always on TV. Yeah, probably. Um, yeah, and I was gonna say a second ago, this movie is also one of those movies. I don't. It doesn't usually come up when I'm podcasting, but um, Josh will say it now and then. Sean will. Um, this is one of those movies that I probably didn't have to watch it, and I could have just shown up to this conversation. Um, mm-hmm. and so yeah, this is one of. The, although I did watch it again, uh, but I, I didn't have to. I could have just showed up easily. Oh, but but now to you, Isaac. You're yeah, to, to continue with what you're saying, Eric, is like I feel like there's a large majority of a population of Earth that have this film ingrained in their mind for mm. some reason, just for how like much of an enjoyable film this is. Uh, way back in the two decades ago, in the year of our Lord, 2009, uh, I was on, just, oh. you know, cruising around the channels. It's Friday night, and I'm just like, yeah, what to watch. Then I go to Spike TV, the channel that oh, wants man. to poke its finger up your butt, because why not, and get away with it. And what were they showing? But they were showing the theatrical version of Aliens. And it was right at the moment when Ripley is briefing the Marines in the Sulaco before they drop down in the uh, dropship uh, to LV-426 slash Hadley's Hope and gives them a rundown of... Uh, the previous events of the film, briefly, of course. Uh, and from there, I pretty much watched the entire thing. Um, hadn't watched Alien prior to that either. Um, mm. And uh, like I said, that was a year as well in the previous commentary. That was a year I also watched Terminator. And maybe the previous year was 2001. But still, yeah, I was th- this film freaked me out. I feel like I also watched this film randomly, like the end scene with like the alien queen the power loader and Ripley about to blow open the airlock or open the airlock excuse me on a Best Buy like portable DVD player in like either 2008 or not something like that it was weird I just I remember like going there and they were showing it and I was like what the heck is this movie it kind of scares me I'm, I'm a little you know I'm a little creeped out by this but and then when I watched this whole thing on um uh, on, on on TV, you know, minus the commercials. Uh, yeah, I was hooked. It, it once again it hooked me, and I was 
scared of it, and yet I was still loving it. It was very weird relation, not weird, but it was a very interesting relationship I had with this film. And thankfully, when I finally was able to purchase said film, uh, I used to have the quadrilogy. Uh, now I don't anymore. But now I have picked up, since and Caleb has this, the 30, 30th anniversary edition, which is like this. It's not, you know, full on like hard metal or anything like that, but this is like, you know, hard. Wait, wait, wait. This hard coating, not coating, but this hard uh, sleeve. And it's got some of the lithographs, some of the original like, art cards and illustrated comic reprints. It's got those original, maybe not original, but some of the. Uh, reprints of those sketches that James Cameron drew. I gotta say, James Cameron, why don't you go into comics? You actually are a really good artist. Like, I, I envy you, sir, as an artist. Like, you, oh man, you should, like, release art books, dude, because you, you do a really good job. They were all interesting. But anyway, sorry, I think, my apologies, sir. Um, yeah, and eventually I watched the director's cut, and that's the, like, I think two years later in 2011, I don't remember. And that's where we'll go with this movie in that, you know, what cut do you guys prefer? Unless this is just a universal answer. I don't think it is a universal answer. And uh, I'll go into that and I'll try to give my little history with it here. Oh yes, Caleb, what is your history with aliens? Yeah, so I, I think I maybe mentioned in our Terminator discussion, I may have also mentioned, because me and Eric recently uh, covered Prey on his podcast, and um, I think I mentioned that I saw Predator when I was very young. I probably saw this movie when I was like six. I don't know what my parents were thinking. It scared the absolute hell out of me. Lucky. And I always felt like I was getting away with something with how much swearing there was. Like when my parents would come in the room, I would turn down the sound because I was like, I feel like they, if they hear all this language, they're not going to let me watch this anymore. And yeah, I've probably seen this thing like 70 times. I also didn't need to watch it for this, but I did. And re referring to what you mentioned, Isaac, I only watched the director's cut for this conversation. Considering that that's James Cameron's preferred cut, that's what he wanted to go out just the studio was like oh, we can't release it in this this length so so i figured for this discussion since it's james cameron might as well go with the director's cuts for probably this and the abyss for next time too i have to go with that but, oh yeah that's right but what did you guys watch eric you first well i watched the director's cut because caleb said too and these <laughs> days i mean even if he wouldn't have said it i usually watch the director's cut if i was going to watch it um, but I have definite mm. thoughts about it. Uh, should I chime in now on, like, preferences or whatever? Yeah, why not? So so I only knew the original cut until, um, I think it was, like, the DVD release that came out. Um, circa 99, 2000 time. And I, you know, I got the whatever special edition DVD for the singular movie. And that had both cuts and i remember so me and my cousins the same ones who watched it with me the first time in 19 it was actually in 87 when it came out on video so the same cousins i watched it with in 87 we watched the theatrical cut together on dvd and i think it was so cool to watch the theatrical cut after being used i mean director's cut after being used mm -hmm. to the theatrical cut because it was like a revelation the first time i saw it because i had no idea all that extra stuff existed um but especially the stuff with the colonists that was just like what is this this is crazy mm -hmm. um but that being said i think the movie 
works better and is cooler the way it is in the theatrical cut with the just getting onto the planet and not knowing um, mm-hmm. and not knowing what to expect. I think that works better when it's your first time viewing than, than seeing the colonists. I think it works better as a, as a prelude to watch after you're used to the standard version. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. And I would say, uh, I think in terms of an aliens or an alien sequel, I think the director's cut is a more fulfilling story, but just as a sit down and just kind of watch like a thrill ride movie, the theatrical cut, it's just completely lean. It just moves. There's, yeah, there's not as much slowing down and that's just a really thrilling experience. Yeah. So, I so agree they have with their that. different benefits. I agree with that. Totally. Uh, Isaac. Yeah. So, uh, I'm with both of you again, director's cut all the way. But I hadn't watched the theatrical cut excuse me, in years, so I decided last night to watch it, uh, watch it fully through, uh, and right now I'm currently f- watching the director's cut, again, even though I, I know most about it, um, I'm familiar with it the most. Uh, it, was, it was interesting to see which scenes were cut, because I, was, I kept wondering, because it had been a long time since I seen the theatrical cut, I was like, okay, which scenes were cut and which weren't, because I... Cause I so familiar with the director's cut i just wanted to know again which which ones were cut and it was mostly some of the beginning stuff like i guess we'll get into it eventually but um yeah i was it really does shake you it, it does take you out of a th- out of it when like as soon as um ripley's uh case ends we just cut to like six months later without like you know any like um, title card or any text on the screen stating like six months later they just say it uh, through dialogue instead uh, instead of it just immediately going to have this hope and we see the whole incident that happens there um, so I was, I was a bit surprised about it. I, I wondered if that worked at all with the critics and the audiences back then if they didn't find that scene hope that, that was just the I think the biggest like one that threw me for a loop just because again that sets up the whole thing really but at the same time because well, there's a lot of things it does that that Hadley's hope scene, which is nice, but it certainly does, as Caleb said, it's much more of a thrill. Or both of you said the theatrical film is much more a thriller, or at least when you go into Hadley's hope not knowing and seeing it beforehand, it certainly does make it a little more creepy. Um, yeah, and and the unknown of like because we do get some you know certain landscaping shots of the planet itself and once again see the derelict ship. Uh, in this, we obviously in the theatrical film you did not see this, so I think both certainly do have their pros. Um, and I appreciate the theatrical version a little more now, surprisingly, because it makes me want to go and rewatch the director's cut. But I am. <laughs> glad that it it does exist this is not like i think we're all in unison here this is not like blade runner with its <laughs> final uh, cut or its four cuts excuse me or the director's cut yeah yeah the four sorry the four cuts i meant to say four cut, not final cut but the four cuts that's a debate for another day yeah and i'll just say on the theatrical cut um because you know how i keep sticky notes in my blu-rays of all the times that i've watched a movie previously i've been doing that since 2015 and I've watched it five times since 2015, and three out of those five times for the theatrical cut. So I don't know, maybe maybe that's my preferred one if I'm just sitting down to watch the movie, and since I already know that those other scenes are there, I don't necessarily need them. 
Um, but I definitely think that the movie misses something without that scene where we find out about Ripley's uh, daughter. I feel like that's the one bit that I wish that they would have included in the theatrical cut. So I feel like that's a really important part. For years, I did something similar with the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Like, even though I consider the extended cuts the, de- the definitive versions of all three movies, usually when I would just sit down and watch um, the Lord of the Rings trilogy, usually I would pop in the theatrical disc. Um, just because, yeah, kind of similar reasons. Like, you know, I, I get all the expanded stuff and it's awesome to know about but I'm just going to sit down and watch the theatrical cut and I don't have to get up and change the disc. Um, <laughs> but it's a difference. Yeah. I would. Yeah. I, I watched the theatrical versions many more times, even though the extendeds are definitely the definitive. Yeah. We're all in unison. So uh, let's begin with, um, yeah, this is not a commentary, but let's just begin with our aliens talk or discussions. Even. Yeah. And I wanted to start again on, on James Cameron. Yeah. So Cameron, he was still like, I, I think, finishing up filming of Terminator like it went into kind of a downturn at some point I can't remember the reason why and he already sold the script for uh, Rambo and someone at the studio Fox read it and they were like oh wow a camera like this script's pretty good let's bring him in um, I was even Isaac considering throwing in uh, First Blood Part 2 just because it's kind of part of the retrospective <laughs> but Oh boy, I definitely would have been here for that. Yeah, I was. I mean, we still could. I would have been. I freaking love Rambo. <laughs> you can make a compelling argument, not to say I'm disagreeing, but it's just like, should we? Like, how much credit are we? Like, yes, exactly. If it's over fifty, if it's saying, if it's over fifty percent of his involvement in that film, then yes. Oh, no. If not, then no. Because if we're, because then we would again have to do Piranha, two. Excuse me. Well, it's probably less than 50% for Piranha 2, but there's definitely more than 50% with Strange Days, which is another one that I've considered adding, but I, I just don't know. Do you guys know much about that film? No, I don't. No. Oh, really, Eric, I'm surprised you haven't seen it. No, I haven't. Yeah, it came out in, I think it was 95, produced by Cameron, written by Cameron. It stars Ralph Fiennes, Angela Bassett, and Juliette Lewis. Yeah, it's just kind of like half like tech noir future film it's not very good um but i considered adding it i've seen the cover a million times but yeah never watched the movie yeah i don't know i don't know oh well maybe me and isaac will discuss it more i mean the most we could do is we'll do it after avatar 2 comes out yeah that could be yeah that could be fun once this retrospective is finished with like on avatar then we could think about like we'll, we'll James Cameron's Avatar, excuse me. Uh, then we could talk about it after we see Avatar 2 in December. Sure. Oh, but um, they initially brought him on just to write the script, but it wasn't until Terminator came out that they were like, oh crap, this guy, he actually seems like he's got some talent. Uh, of, uh, of, of um, Rambo or of this film? Anyways. Oh, for this film. For okay, this yeah, film. I'm sorry. Yeah, he yeah, definitely didn't direct Rambo 2 or else it would be on the list. <laughs> And thank God he didn't, because, oh boy, I don't, do not like that film. But, sorry, Eric. I'm not saying it's a great piece of cinema, but it was one of those hot take. defining movies of the time. Oh, I don't know if it's a hot take. I think most people nowadays recognize that's not a, a great film. Yeah, but but for a genre, you know, like you go to a, you go to a, well, supposedly you go to a comedy to laugh. And so, you know, it doesn't have to be high cinema per se. Um, mm-hmm. And, and that movie is in its own genre 
and you just expect explosions and action and high octane and it totally delivers on what you would expect it to deliver especially for the 80s it's one of those token representatives of that 80s subgenre yeah and i recently watched uh, commando about like two days ago i rewatched that movie oh it's another one of those kind of things exactly and it had a james horner uh, james horner score which is another really cool score by him um, but i did want to mention because i always see people crediting kind of the reinvention of this movie to james cameron um, I, and i never realized until doing prep for this that it was actually walter hill and david guiler the alien producers who came up with the idea of having ripley pair up with a group of commandos and they selected james cameron because of his work with the rambo they're like oh it seems like he knows how to write military types so so that was interesting should i have to ask you a vote later and i guess it melded well because i guess it's something he always wanted to explore in film anyway hmm. yeah and hill and guiler are not known for having the best ideas for this franchise so i just want to give them a little bit of credit there for yeah having something that worked considering the stuff that they pulled out later in these this franchise god damn those guys but... up until this point they have good ideas <laughs> Yeah, after that, Alien 3, but again, that's a tale for another Yeah, time. Resurrection. Oh, boy. Um, but since the, the movie's playing here, I, I started kind of late. Uh, one of the things I always kind of dislike with this movie um, was the opening bit with the, uh, the dream sequence. I'm never a huge fan of that kind of thing in film. Um, and it, I also feel like it could mislead audiences into that it's maybe playing into that horror trope of the time where a horror sequel would open up with the first 10 minutes just killing off the hero from the last one they did that in the friday the 13th movies all the time they did it in kind of did it with halloween a little bit too it's like man i hate that trope so so i wish that didn't make me uh think of that but but it just made you think of it they didn't actually do it yeah but it was still a fake out uh, dream sequence which i i don't really like either Eh, I'm neither here nor there with it. And it would make sense, you know, in the context that you might have a dream like that. Yeah, and it does fill in the early scene with her and Burke, but I just wish it was actually that scene and we didn't get the uh, yeah, the alien bit there. But maybe they're worried because uh, the aliens don't show up for like an hour and 15 minutes, at least in this cut. It's more like the hour mark in the theatrical. So maybe they wanted a little scare at the front, but I still thought it was kind of cheap. But, but go ahead, Isaac. Yeah, sorry. Uh, I feel like I, I see your point. The the scene with Burke probably did happen. It probably happened mm-hmm. that morning or session. What I don't know what like how time works on their station, but like um, she had that interaction with him, and then the alien pops up. I don't know if that was, of course, in the dream. I don't know if that's due to stress or again just. Well, we see that uh, she's haunted. She's got, like, PTSD. Yeah, she's she's haunted. I mean, we'll like... assume. Yeah, it's the way that Isaac yeah. says. Because otherwise, yeah. she's dreaming about a person she hasn't met yet. <laughs> Remarkably <laughs> accurate. <laughs> yeah, it's just, I wonder if she had... Writers and, or, and authors have probably gone into this in, you know, the thousands of alien comics that have come out from this or spawned from this. But I wonder if she had the same dream over and over and over, or the same dream continuously for those 57 yeah. years of hypersleep, which is, well, I mean, that would drive her insane. I would think you wouldn't dream in, in hypersleep, because you're just kind of, everything's frozen. I would think too, but there's those scenes in um, in uh, Prometheus, 
I would that would suggest otherwise. Oh, fuck that. Fuck that. Okay, not it hasn't come out yet. That has, I'm, I'm, I'm I'm evoking the, the that film hasn't come out yet, so like we're talking about this one. So, yeah, I think I you're not wrong, but like let's say that for this, but I do have a point. Just saying it would suggest otherwise. I'll just say um even though I really for a number of years really dis- despised Prometheus. And not even on my first two or three viewings, it wasn't until like my fourth or fifth that I started being like, man, I hate this movie. <laughs> now I've actually turned around, and while I don't think it's a great movie, I still think it has a number of things that make it worthwhile. And I actually feel a similar way about Alien Covenant now as well. So, oh my. Just, just for you, Isaac. Since, uh, That's fair. Yeah, it's, again, for, for another point. But yeah. here's my point. Um, I'm once again shocked. Well, okay, first off, hot take. Um, this entire movie is just a remake of Alien. Uh, oh, yeah. And two, the mm-hmm. beginning of when, you know, the salvage crew finds her. Nothing wrong with that. I'm surprised that it didn't go into... I obviously did not have to, but I was surprised that the salvage crew didn't keep her hostage or something like that. Or, or like, you know, fish out of water. Like, oh, what am I? Like, where, where am I? I'm Ripley and what's not. And they, like, lie to her. So I was just surprised they didn't go with that angle, but obviously that would be a different movie entirely. I'm very glad they didn't. <laughs> yeah, that would have been... Maybe they did held her for like a week until they got to space dock or whatever yeah and or just like they, they, they ransom her you said this movie is like a remake of alien you said i did mm-hmm. say this is like almost not shot for shot I, but i never think of it as a remake but okay well script wise it's very clear that cameron looked at that original story and just kind of warped the edges but kept the same basic structure um even if that's true I still don't think of it as a remake. Even if that's okay, remake is yeah, wrong. We can discuss it, but it's certainly like same basic premise, but it works. Yeah, I mean, let's not forget that was the basic way they used to make sequels. Let's just take what worked in the original one. Development. Yes, I know exactly what you're talking about. I know exactly what you're talking about, um, but I, I don't see it as like a remake, um, even despite what you're saying, because I, I, I mean. I could take that, like I'd believe it more. Like if we were talking about Jaws two, you know, or something like that. But well, that's yeah, that's no. Boring. I think of this movie is is like really original as compared to its original. Um, no, I, I think I take this as like a really fresh uh, sequel, even if there are similarities uh, to the original. Just like oh, I don't, is. just like I don't, I don't sign off if we're doing like a Star Wars debate on. Force Awakens being like a, a remake of uh, New Hope, I can see very clearly why someone Save would make that, that argument. For when we get, to yeah, yeah, but I could see very clearly why someone would can make that argument. I just don't subscribe to it personally. That's fair. I'm I'm just stating that when you distill and boil this film down to its essence and its premise, it's just the alien script, mm-hmm. different, but. Uh, still the same premise. Terminator 2, for instance, and I know I shouldn't be going forward, but Terminator 2 is completely yeah. different from Terminator 1. Like that, even when you boil that film down to its essence, it is not the same as the first film. I'll say that it's more different, for sure. Yes, it uh. is. But this is just the basic thing of uh, a, a, a uh, what is it, a person uh, and a crew of people in a ship go down to a planet and mm-hmm. uh, to be fair, one of them does not get infested by an alien, does not get uh, face-hugged by an alien, and doesn't, like, explode from their chest. But they still fight 
an alien, and by the end, an alien gets onto the ship, and mm-hmm. said alien, even though it's not an escape pod, said alien has to be blown out of an airlock. Yeah, and Ripley has Ripley has to get into a suit to fight the alien. We have a CD yes. betraying uh, type from the company in there. Too. I, I will say that the airlock um, resolution at the end, yeah, that's a bit too samey. But also, but then I I counterpoint that in my own mind, saying, well, I don't like appreciate that sameness. I excuse it because just that having that extra ten minutes at the end of the movie is just like the cherry on top. So then I excuse that sameness. I would also say that both movies open the same and end the same. Both uh, has mm-hmm. somebody coming out of hypersleep and then they go back into hypersleep. Um, yeah, but yeah, it's like the same shot. Just it, I don't think it's a negative to say that it basically remade the first one. Oh no, I don't think of it the same. Just like you don't necessarily think of every movie that falls or story that falls like the traditional hero's journey like just because something oh. falls the traditional hero's journey i don't necessarily consider it a remake of previous hero journey movies or stories um even if it falls like all the same beats um that's kind of what because because the fact that it does literally start with someone coming out of hypersleep and then someone going back in I mean that could just be a metaphor again of the hero's journey of of except um, except metaphorically explicitly showing some, but metaphorically someone always wakes up at the beginning of every hero journey and metaphorically goes to sleep. So it in my mind it's not just these two movies that share that it's like every hero's journey they just literally show it. If you even look at the the structure of the multiple climaxes. You, you have in the first one Ripley going back for the cat, and we have all those red lights everywhere. This one we have Ripley going back for Newt with the red lights. And then, yeah, then they have the, the kind of yes, but... escape pod or the secondary ship thing. And again, the bishop. There's so many elements that are just very much recycled from that first one. No, there, there are those things. There are those things. But um, but just like how like there's all these similar beats in like the trilogy, the Star Wars prequel trilogy and the star wars originally original trilogy even though there's like all these similar beats by design intentionally i still don't think of one as a remake of the other poetry um right and even like you said all these beats are the same it's a wildly different meaning when she goes after newt in this than when she goes after goes back for her cat in the first so even though it like still hits the same beats it's a, it's a whole different context of meaning yeah again i think i think maybe you're mistaking what we're saying for a negative I think it's fantastic that James Cameron was able to take the skeleton of that first movie and just completely change up all the elements to make them new and special again, even though he's essentially remaking that script. Precisely. I think that's really cool and shows his talent as a writer. Exactly. I'm all for that. Uh, I think, yeah, I think I disagree with the syntax of using the term remake. (laughs) Remake nowadays is a hot topic of debate and and certainly will uh, get into a flame war with certain people just because it's not a remake. Especially when this like comes out, uh, what is it? 79? 86. Uh, 86, so five, seven years later. No, yeah, eight years later. Um, No, nine years later. Um, So, no, yeah, I, I, I was saying is it's funny how James Cameron basically took the same, as Caleb just said, restructured it, but he did something that you can you can you can call me out on the no, you're not calling me out, but but please, Eric, tell me, 
has there been another script or movie that has done the exact same thing as the first film? Again, boiled, boiling the script mm-hmm. down to its essence and basically giving us the same movie but different. What, has there been a sequel or another movie like that out there? I would like to know. I can think of one. And what is that? I, I can think of one. I already, I already said it, but I don't even want to go there again. Uh, Force Awakens again. Yeah, Force Awakens. Which one does Caleb that, that's, say? Evil Dead Two. Oh yeah, that kind of remakes the first one in the first. Man has the answer. Winner for tonight. Yeah, yeah, that's true. But that one's, but that's also like, you know, it was by design. And I, I, there's yes. there's other examples that are similar to Evil Dead One and Two, where um, that's what Robert Rodriguez did when he made El Mariachi and then Desperado. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. He did the, basically the Very same thing so. as Evil Dead did. Um, and yeah, and both are, no. Oh, the other reason I think I don't subscribe to the the remake syntax is because even though all those beats and similarities are true, um, he did another interesting thing, which is. I consider this movie as a, a, as being a completely different genre than the first movie, um, and that's another reason mm. why, even though it has the same beats, it's a different genre. Now, try to come up with another movie that matches the beats of the original, but then switches genres, and I think that'd be hard to come up with. <laughs> yeah, no, that is tough. Hmm. <laughs> Any ideas, Isaac? Because I'm. At least at the moment, drawing blanks. Yeah, no, I don't. I don't have one. I obviously extend that to you too because you have watched way more films than I ever have, so I couldn't even yeah. tell you. And and that's why I don't even like the comparison when people like to use this as like a prime example of like where the sequel. And I know you can argue the opposite, but where this is, we use as one of those examples when they go, name a movie where the sequel is better than the original, you know? And this one will come up all the time. But I hate entertaining that because I don't like to con- like. There's to me again. To me, they're so different mm-hmm. that it's like unfair to um, say this one's better than the original. Because to me, they're apples and oranges, despite all the similarities that y'all. That's, that's funny. Now I'm yeah. not gonna go into that because that's again for yeah for our, a different series. For a different yeah. series, this is about Jamie Cameron. Okay, we're not gonna talk about like yeah, that. Jimmy that, Boy. Which which again. <laughs> You have a good point, though. I, I do. I'll at least say this: is that yes, the uh, Alien feels a lot smaller and is much more a horror film. This yes. is bigger. It's an action film, uh, oh, yeah. and it's, uh, yeah, yeah, bigger and um, maybe a little more generalized. Not that the first one wasn't, but I'll say this: is that when when they go to hypersleep or when they waken from hypersleep in Alien, for instance, they're woken up by mother and they come out of pods this one doesn't have that so if you get the symbolism there you get it but they don't do that in this one unless you want to like somehow connect that or contrast that with the alien queen but like that's a tale for another day (laughs) well nobody did want to say because i paused it during the, the hadley's hope scene and yeah even though sometimes i do you know rather prefer to watch the theatrical because i don't need that kind of little bit of an interruption i love that we get to see um that's that that really intense scene when newt's parents come back to her and the dad's got the, the face hugger on and she's screaming and cameron just zooms in on her face i think that's a great scene um and i also want to call out a buddy of mine the more uh 
he's a little bit more uh what's the word he's the guy a that takes the, yeah he's the guy that takes the coffee like he he's in the control yes. room he takes like a random coffee cup dips his finger in there thinks it's warm yeah. doesn't matter if it's his or not that guy's awesome that is a great touch that guy played a recurring character in red dwarf for the the, the whole run of that show oh, and really? so seeing him in this i'm always really happy to see him it's like hey it's my bud I had no idea. I just want to gush as to how, like, Cameron and or whoever the scriptwriter was, maybe he just gave the actors free reign, but just, man, yeah. you can almost tell every <laughs> single character from each other in this film. And that's amazing. Oh, yeah. Yeah, they're very distinct. At least the ones that it boils down to. What is What did he do? What kind of unholy magic did Cameron to perform? He gave them all memorable lines. He chose actors who looked distinct and were able to give you know, very colorful performances to, to well, say the least. There's, yeah. There's and, that. And there's, yeah. I mean, on, on the page, many of them were written specifically, you know, differentiated. Um, but there's a few more other things uh, because while they mostly go by the script initially, he did allow a certain amount of uh, ad libbing and like a lot mm -hmm. of um, Hudson's lines, his famous lines were ad libbed and not in the script. Um, another thing he did intentionally was the whole waking up and getting together for breakfast and all that business. He intentionally shot that last at the end of the movie mm. because he wanted them. He wanted to show that natural camaraderie. And so by choosing to film it last, all these people have been working together for months so that it made it more natural. Um, to show them being like comfortable with each other and joking around with each other so yeah yeah that's that's very smart and we haven't really mentioned yet but i do think that this is like a giant leap forward for cameron from terminator i really like terminator oh, massively but just the the lo level of writing the kind of assurity as a cinematographer even 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 though he's not doing the cinematography there's just so many great shots and well thought out shots and yeah, um, the direction of the acting, I think, is super-duper uh, fun in this one. And some other things on the previous point. Um, you know, all the actors except for Bean, who wasn't cast yet at the time, um, Michael Bean, um, they all participated, like, in... Because it was shot in England. They all participated, like, in a crash course, like, Special Forces British, <laughs> like, military training all together, like, boot camp. Which I know is, like, very standard nowadays in tons of movies they, they do that but so they all went through that experience prior shooting and then he like m told everyone to like customize their armor and make it how they want to do it so they all put like their own personal flourishes and things um everyone got to do that except for michael bean because a different character was a different actor was cast and so bean inherited like the the decorations that he had on his armor and stuff like that because he inherited that guy's costumes and stuff but also like their lockers they all individually decorated them uh, at commands at, at um cameron's uh, order so they every so yeah he had them. yeah 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 so there's a whole bunch of all that stuff oh and also i didn't even know this uh, until looking it up but the and it's weird that this movie was shot on site uh, in the in the um, in Pinewood Studios, side by side with Full Metal Jacket, like they were both shot simultaneously in near wow. proximity to each other, which is really weird. But um, and so like they would hang out with each other like during meals and stuff, oh. like the cast from like both movies. But um, 
the guy who plays the sergeant, the African American sergeant uh, in Aliens, mm. it, just like the guy in Platoon, uh, he was a real life Marine in in his younger years. But not only that, he was like the first, literally the first African American, like sergeant, like in the Marines or something, like in real life. Or oh, wow. it, it couldn't have been sergeant. I have to look it up. But he had like. But yeah, he attained like a certain rank and position, and he was the very first African American in real life to like attain that position in the Marines. And yeah, hmm. it's just interesting stuff. Oh, it is interesting, and I quite like him too. I think his uh, his look into my eye line always stuck with me as a kid. So, Caleb, <laughs> you have a thing with famously you have a problem with how military. Uh, personnel and soldiers are depicted in movies mm. even though this is a fictitious future versions of a army and a military what is it about these characters the uh, u.s marine corps or space marine excuse me what is it about these characters that you like or the yeah these characters um well one they're not bland as like burnt toast which i feel like a lot of them are and you're just supposed to latch onto them just because of their the fact they're part of the military um i think a lot of their performances are really fun um hicks is michael bean is at his hottest here yes he <laughs> as is as an actor oh yes he is i just can't stop looking at him in this movie and yeah i think i think they all have a really charming dynamic as a group which helps again some of those movies yeah they're just either bland or unlikable i always think of the hurt locker where somehow Jeremy Renner's character is both bland and unlikable at the same time. I don't know how oh, he manages man. that. I had difficulty but, watching huh. that movie, even though it's a good movie. And directed by Cameron's wife, I believe. Yes, that's right, yeah. <laughs> oh, and I'll quickly mention her, by the way. Yes. Um, so we get a couple Cameron regulars in this one. We get Lance Henriksen back and Bill Paxton and Michael Bean. Um, and the three of them, and uh, or actually the two of them, Lance Henriksen and, Mike, and Bill Paxton, um, this the next year after this was in Catherine Bigelow's uh, first film, Near Dark, and they also had the the woman who plays Vasquez, uh, Jeanette Goldstein. Oh yeah, yeah. The three of them are in that. Really cool movie. Definitely recommend that. It's a cool little piece of uh, '80s horror. That's weird. Never heard of that one. Either. Um, and yeah, definitely Jeanette Goldstein. Yeah, we'll see a lot of her during this Cameron retrospective. Oh yeah, that I know. Um, but yeah, another thing he did was um he told all the uh, space marines um actors to all read uh the novel uh, starship troopers as well that was required homework for them oh hmm. i didn't realize if you watch the uh making of aliens yeah all that's there <laughs> but i assumed it before i came across the factoid like that's it true. seemed very obvious to me that he was when i heard that cameron did this because he always wanted to do space marines I was like, yeah, I'm sure. Of course he's read Starship Troopers. How could he not? Um, but just like the scene in the medical station when when uh, Ripley has to meet all the suit types and you know they're discussing whatever. Like that scene, it, it so looks to me like the scene in 2001 when they go to the moon and they're talking about what mm-hmm. they're going to do about these mm-hmm. monoliths. And so it, it looks just like it. And so, I mean, I was like, it's not, that's not coincidental. That is not accidental at all in my mind. Um, but since Goldstein was mentioned now, I'm just curious. <laughs> Does anybody have any feelings about, and it wouldn't have been called this at the time, but 
Oh, I know where this is going. It's called this now. Exactly. Any any thoughts on the quote unquote brown face? Oh, it was a thing that they used to do back then. I don't really have too many issues. Um, if it was done now, it would be more off-putting just because we're more socially aware in that way. And we're aware of that puts off people. But for 86, I mean, wasn't it this exact same year that fucking Soul Man came out? <laughs> I think, sure think it was. was. I think it was. I gotta look it up now. Of course, of course, that movie is a goof on the concept, but I know what you mean. Yes, but boy, oh boy. <laughs> I have no objections. I mean, the fact that she's considered one of the, like, she's probably, like, in movie history, considered one of the coolest, like, Latina characters. Um, especially back in the day when there wasn't hardly any that you could point to, like, in, in major film. Um, but to me, it's neither here nor there at all. Uh, but that's just how I am on these kinds of things. Because I'm that odd duck who wouldn't care if it was done in, in 2022. And I know that's like a minority opinion. Um, and I get why you probably wouldn't do it in 2022. Because there's also like a bigger pool of Latina actresses to choose from these days. Um, but no, like Vasquez, everyone always thought she was cool. And I didn't realize like she wasn't Latina until I was watching like the special features for Terminator 2. And I was like, oh my gosh. And it was a revelatory moment, but other than that, I have no issues at all. Yeah, I've got a, I have really high facial recognition uh, software in my brain. Nice. And so I always recognized her in Titanic. Now it's always like, hey, you know, she looks a lot whiter there. Like what's, mm -hmm. what's going on there? And then, <laughs> so yeah, when I found out, I wasn't surprised, but. No, nah, but. Oh, but I was going to mention, uh, oh, just on the, they wouldn't release a movie with that kind of thing now. Do you guys know anything about the Jamie Foxx uh, directed movie that he's been sitting on for, I think, three or four years now? He directed this movie and he hired uh, Robert Downey Jr. to be in it, playing this Mexican character. And they doled him up and he had the brown face and it was meant to be kind of a, a reference to his Tropic Thunder role. Right. And Jamie Foxx said that after he made it the kind of social movement around that stuff turned around and he's been like oh, i just don't feel comfortable releasing it because i'm nervous how people are going to respond so that's yeah. kind of interesting that they're willing to try something in yeah around that time but just yeah, the culture would not accept it these days yeah i i don't generally speak i never have an issue with it for for whatever it is like someone playing i always think generally actors actresses can play anything that they're not but again minority opinion in current times it's a complex issue i will not i, I obviously do not want to like i'm walking on hot coals here i'm, I'm mm -hmm. aware of that i'm walking on a bed of nails when i see this so this is <laughs> i will step on these i think i think straight people can play queer people i think queer people can play straight people i think people with disabilities can play well and i think it's all it's everything it's, it's a little different it's a little different when you have to paint their their skin to uh, make them a different race. I can understand why that bothers people. I mean, I'll, I'll just say, as a as a fan of Charlie Chan Mysteries, I watched a really cool cool one a few days ago called Charlie Chan and Honolulu. I love those mysteries, but it makes me uncomfortable seeing Charlie Chan squint his eyes and put on the weird accent he does. And it makes it weirder that all of his kids have perfect American accents and he's the only one. Say it makes it, me uncomfortable. I, I, I will admit it doesn't. It doesn't make me uncomfortable these days. Now it is a little bit goofy when it, it does like take you out of the movie for a second, 
because you're like, wait a second. But generally, nah, it doesn't make me uncomfortable in retrospect. Um, and another more modern example where they colored someone's skin and everything um, was in Casino Royale. Uh, not Casino Royale. Um, Quantum of Solace. Um, they had cast Olga Karolenko, who is of Ukrainian descent, I believe, or somewhere in the former Soviet bloc. I think it's Ukraine. Um, and then she's supposed to play this Latina character as well. And they browned her up. They bronzed her up with makeup. And she's doing her best to do a Latina accent. And it does come off a little bit awkward. But does not bother me in the slightest um, with getting on board with that movie. And she's like in my top three like Bond girls as well. <laughs> like on top of all that. So. Yeah, it's a debate that won't be held here, but I'll just say that she convinced, get back to Jeanette Goldstein, she convinced me that she was uh, of Latina descent. I was completely not, so. convinced. I was completely convinced back in the day. I, I would, yeah, I would ask, I would ask the Latina community of what they think, and if it's not a harmful representation, then I, I refer to their opinion, but as for my opinion... I would I would go and and try to find a Latina actor to do so, but again, I'm not I'm not Cameron. So I was actually, and I don't care, but I was actually more distracted in the in Spielberg's uh, West Side Story that the female lead in that movie is supposed to be playing Puerto Rican, and she's like Colombian or something in real life, and she does not seem Puerto Rican to me at all, and it. I can totally tell that something's off, but I'm, but I'm, I still don't even care that much, even though I can tell she's not Puerto Rican. I'm more convinced by Vasquez in this movie than I am by her in that movie from last year. Interesting. So you know, put that's that. fair. <laughs> I also didn't think she seemed Puerto Rican. Not at all. Damn. But I don't care. It doesn't that's ruin fine. the movie. I just was surprised in 2021 yeah. that they would do something like that. And there was a little bit of backlash, by the way. There was. It was Grandpa Spielberg. Yeah. Grandpa didn't realize. <laughs> he forgot to take his 2022 meds. Oh, no, that's oh terrible. That's goodness. really terrible. Wow. Okay. Well, the ageism. <laughs> I apologize. Yeah. It's, well, for me, that's like if anybody, like, you know, picks a Brazilian uh, person and they start speaking Spanish, it's like, okay, you got something. Oh, that's a major really, really fail. That's a major faux pas right there. But anyways, okay. It was it's it's problematic, but I think every, I th I don't I think our society has let it have a pass. The the, the Jeanette Goldstein being Latina, I think it's a pass. I say that with much hesitation. I think I think it's still more the hardcore hardcore movie nerds and sci-fi nerds. I don't think it's generally known like in like in the public arena if somebody made a big That's huff about it on social media i think they could create a backlash re retroactively well this movie's gotten canceled <laughs> no i don't think it would ever reach that because yeah she is kind of an icon and i mean again to reference charlie chan i mean there was people chinese people in the states at the time back in the 30s and 40s who were like hey you know this makes us uncomfortable but back in china they were a massive hit they invited one of the Charlie Chan actors to come there. They didn't even address him by his real name. They called him Mr. Chan. Oh, my goodness. And he was treated with honor there. They, uh, so. Yeah, that's the other thing that people don't get either. And that's that's a whole 
because that happens even nowadays. Um, but that's not ever part of the conversation. Yeah, and really the conversations about the the movie, and I think her performance is also really memorable. It's convincing. She's definitely one that, uh, yeah, stuck with me coming away from Hell this Hell yeah. I still remember like, to this day, because every kid saw this movie at my age, and like whenever you talked about this movie at school, like everyone always talked about Vasquez, the character, like like almost as if she was the main character in the movie. Like that's the way she was talking about when I was growing up. Like yeah, that's this cool. whole movie is like her movie. <laughs> yeah, and again, check out Near Dark. She plays another really cool character there. I like her a lot in that one. It's too too bad the camera didn't really uh, utilize her again. Just brought her back for bit roles. Um, but speaking of some of the other cast, the Marines, of course, Bill Paxton kind of uh, is another one that kind of reigns supreme in the the secondary characters. That guy did all he could to stand out in this one, and uh, <laughs> uh, sometimes it grates on me a little bit. His uh, just just screaming and his uh, I don't oh know. Oh my god! But I think he's a lot of fun early on, and and still remains fun throughout. But sometimes he does grate on me a little. <sighs> It, when me and my cousin saw the the, I think it was on the extended cut. I'm not sure if it's in the theatrical, or maybe it is. Maybe it's in both. But when we were watching it in the year 99, 2000, man, his his line when he says "Game over, man," or is it "Game over, man" or "Game over, dude"? Uh, game over, game man. over, man. No, game man. over. Game over. Oh my god! Me and my cousin <laughs> like repeated that a bajillion times, like in the year 2000. Like, oh my god. He is absolutely probably the next most iconic character outside of the obviously Ripley, I think. Yeah, and I guess his his arc is kind of fun. I mean he even calls himself the ultimate badass, the king of the ultimate badass brigade, I think he says or something like that. And he thinks he's so great and he's the hottest shit around. And then of course he's the first one to just collapse into a puddle of tears and yeah. I love his line when uh Ripley's like, oh, Newt here has been surviving just fine with no guns. He's like, oh, put her in charge. charge. I always love that line. <laughs> or what was, the other, what was the other famous line towards the beginning between the exchange between him and Vasquez? Um, hey, Vasquez, is anybody can uh, mistaken you for a man? Yes, for a yeah. real man. <laughs> oh my God, that was that's one that's the, one of the. And then the she replies, have, "No, have you ever been mistaken for a woman?" <laughs> Or no, ha- sorry. No, 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 no. Have you? How about no? Have you? Oh my yeah, god! Yeah, yeah. So good. <laughs> There's so many just fantastic lines in this. Absolutely. Supposedly, according to the trivia on IMDb, um, that whenever Paxton had to cuss in front of the actress who plays Newt, supposedly every time they say "cut," he would like profusely like apologize to her for cussing. Uh, what a nice guy! <laughs> what an absolute nice guy! <laughs> Yeah, and again, um, even though my parents will let me watch tons and tons of R-rated action movies particularly, but but horror movies as well, there was something about the language in this one that always felt like it was a touch above, like it was more extreme than most of the other action movies I was watching from this time period or the the mid-90s. Did you you feel like this was also a little bit... Because I watched Commando a little while ago. And they definitely, it was a lot pulled back in terms of the, the use what of the What sucks fuck. for me is I probably watched it so many more times on free television. So you know how they mm. would do. Hey, corn dog, What? Arse <laughs> face. So I probably watched that version like many more times than I watched like the proper version. 
So I probably, probably, probably <laughs> couldn't tell because everything was overdubbed. That's fair. <laughs> oh, and just because this guy's about to die in my version here. Um, the other black uh, marine, uh, yeah. the actor's name is Rico Ross. I forget what the character's name is. Uh, maybe it's Frost. Spunkmire? No. No, 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 not Spunkmire. He's the co-pilot. Yeah. Um, I think it might be Frost. Yeah, Frost. Yeah, the guy who says, guess you don't like the cornbread either. Uh, that guy, I have to mention, was in Doctor Who, a great episode of Doctor Who, uh, greatest show in the galaxy. So, so there you go. I think that's the only Doctor Who actor. Oh, is that one? I thought you were going to say like a new Who or something. Um, no, he played the uh, the rapping uh, host of the circus. Oh my gosh. Oh, the raps. Oh boy, Doctor Who. <laughs> um, but I'm just seeing some of the, like that that whole action scene when they first encounter the, the person concluding to the wall cocoon to the wall i should say i think that's just a really tense moment and then it just the movie almost like shoots out of a rocket at that point it just starts going and really doesn't let up like every now and again every 15 minutes or so they'll give you like a like a two minute break where it kind of slows down and then just shoots off again it's crazy <laughs> no it's fantastic and i was thinking this is probably one of those like prime examples when once it gets going it's one of those prime examples of just non-stop action that just keeps going. I mean, because me and Sean recently, you know, revisited uh, Fury Road, and that's mm. like the modern version of that, uh, except they do it for practically the whole movie. But I think this is like a proto version of that, just non-stop, like amazing adrenaline, like, like really thought out, like action thrill ride that. I don't know. Someone think of something else mm -hmm. that's like from the '80s or prior that is just so much of that continuously. It's, it's freaking amazing. Yeah, and it's it's almost exhausting. Like <laughs> it almost gets to the point where it's just like, holy crap, how much more can I take? Oh, and it keeps topping itself too. That's what's so crazy. We get like what I feel like could have been three climaxes. The first climax when they first escape, then Ripley goes back in and has like a second climax. And then after she escapes again, it's like a third climax. And I don't know how they just keep getting better and better each time. It's yeah, crazy. it's crazy. It is crazy. And I would have loved to have seen this in the theater. I just think, oh, it would just have been like absolutely incredible. Yeah, I really hope they played in my area at some point soon. I'd love to see this theatrically. Amen, brother. Amen. So uh, let's talk about James Horner and the score mm. and how famously this was what broke his friendship with Cameron for a while and then he came back for Titanic um, <laughs> but this broke him and he was unable to I think finish the final piece of music for like the, yeah, the finale and it's it's in the Blu-ray somewhere I think or it's online somewhere I, I've not listened to it personally but I feel like that makes sense because they reused the same music from um, when when, when as, as Bishop's escaping the atmosphere of LP-426, as the atmosphere processing station is about to go thermal barrack, um, we, we have that, you know, that that, that, uh, that score he does that he has very, you know, it builds up to, like, will they make it or not? And then we use the same one as the, the alien queen gets blown out of the airlock. I feel like that's mm. what they were talking about, where he was like, that was the final score that I was wanting to uh, use, and... It's, again, I think a rough cut of it or a demo version, something is on the Blu-ray or 4K, I don't know. 
uh, that you can listen to. Maybe even like over top the music. That's interesting that nobody ever went back and like, if if him and that, see that'd be interesting if him and Cameron like when they made amends. I wonder if Cameron probably didn't do it. But it would have been interesting <laughs> if he had like finished it and like done it in another release where it was like a third cut with the actual score behind at, at the end. I don't I don't know. Does that make sense? I don't think it'll never happen. I, of course he's. He's passed now, but rest in peace. Yeah, but oh, I was so sad that day. That was like for me the day the music died. Um, <laughs> oh, yeah. Just wait till John Williams, because he's always been one of my favorite composers. And yeah, I didn't realize all the issues with the score um, for this particular movie. How he basically had three weeks to write the whole thing. Some of it, he some of the tracks, some of the key tracks, he literally wrote in one night. Um, and, um, also like, cause it was done so quickly when James Cameron got to hear the whole thing married to the movie, he didn't like the score overall. Nope. Um, and then this is the part that probably pissed off Warner even more, um, to add insult to injury. Cameron just Frankensteined his score and just cut it up into pieces and then put the pieces where he wanted throughout the movie. Um, mm-hmm. And not only that, he reused pieces from the Jerry Goldsmith's original score as well um, in Aliens. So, yeah, there's a lot to unpack there. Um, but then there was like some particular sting that horner only wrote once in his score uh like when an alien pops out oh golly and then in retrospect actually cameron did like that so he actually reused it multiple times in the movie um even though it was only like written in once he used it for like multiple like reveals of aliens in the movie that sting has peeved me off because i've heard it in other like medias outside of aliens that is a commonly like that little flute that goes um that that score that sting has been used in other like medias and franchises hmm. and it sickens me like just and, and i like it just it's overused it's oversaturated and i feel bad going back to this movie and hearing it again but oh that just annoys me so much but uh, do you have anything else Eric? sorry i just wanted to, I didn't want to interrupt you. yeah and then just in general i know people always levy this attack on james horner especially in his works uh, in the 80s, that if you listen to all his soundtracks from the 80s, from every movie, oh my God, it sounds like 80% of all the soundtracks he did in the 80s, 80% of them are like reused motifs um, in all his movies. And it feels like only 20% is like original in all his different 80s (laughs) scores because there's so many cues in this that are like right out of Rathacon right out of search for spock right out of um i always pronounced it cruel but i guess it's correctly pronounced crawl yeah crawl yeah but the like this like crazy fanfare music or the it's in all his scores from the 80s and people always attack him for plagiarizing himself i don't care i love it all I love it all. I don't care that he just reuses so much of his own material over and over. He started mixing it up in like in later decades 
But you can even still catch some of those old things, like in his more modern uh, scores. Uh, I don't care. I, I've all I I never cared. But but yeah, people call him a hack. I, if yeah. you if you know what I'm talking about, you, you cannot miss it. <laughs> yeah, and even though a lot of it is yeah derivative of his own work, it still fits super well in this this movie. And yeah, composers they fucking hate it when you just yeah Frankenstein their score, but yeah, but Cameron did a good job with it. It works. <laughs> and that's where I come in with what I was wanting to originally say that I don't know if this was again uh, Horner or Cameron or Cameron's editor, but what I was wanting to go for was when the Marines. It's in the if everybody goes to like I don't want to timestamp, but like if everybody goes to the I guess uh, in their like you know scene selection if people actually do that in like the under where it's called arrival when the marines actually go inside hadley's hope that's where i am right now i'm way behind you caleb <laughs> um when the marines initially go into the uh, hadley's hope there's no music just perfect just again i don't know who it is but they know when to not use score and that's the that's when a composer has done their job perfectly i would guess that was cameron but <laughs> but who knows yeah i think it's cameron i figure so. i also really love after ripley catches newt uh to cuts her out of the wall and they're escaping there's no score there either all you hear is the sound of the fire around them and the alarm in the sound of the aliens just slowly getting closer and closer i thought that was another great no use of score in that moment oh my goodness yeah the last like 14 by the way so in the end when uh she goes to get newt and the over the comms, it says, uh, you know, you have 14 minutes to evacuate the premises. Does anybody actually time that? I meant to do that last night, but, like, does anybody actually time <laughs> that to see if it's actually 14 minutes? Um, I didn't do it, but fun facts, according to IMDb, they say it's going to take 15 minutes of a countdown. The whole sequence goes for 15 minutes in real time. That's oh, wow. freaking awesome. Yeah. Cameron was paying attention. There you go. There's a there's a smaller bit like that earlier in the movie, where the sergeant's like, "You got ten seconds, you know, you know, get off or whatever," and all the soldiers get off in ten seconds. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty cool. Yeah, I love when when yeah when when movies do that real time thing. I know some movies do it for like the full runtime, but um, but when there's like a sequence that's basically done in real time, uh, that yeah, that's pretty amazing. Because everyone always notices when it's not done, you know, <laughs> truly, like in other movies. Uh, but yeah, it's really 15 minutes, the whole entire sequence, the countdown and everything. Yeah, and just talking a little bit about something that surrounds the climax. Um, I think the uh, Ripley and Newt dynamic, I think, works surprisingly well. I feel like that's something that could have easily been, if I mean, if you had a bad child actor or, or something, it could have been really annoying to have this this random kid hanging around. But for whatever reason, it just it works really well, and I love all their scenes together. Oh man, I was thinking about how it's been done to death recently in modern things, and like you know, definitely brought up in Obi Wan, and there's all these things now with someone saving a, a young character, and I never really thought about this in that context. And I agree with what you just said. It it could have like it could have wrecked things completely. But it work. Not only does it work, but it adds to the, all the um, um, symbolism and, and pathos 
that has been attributed mm. now to this movie and the original quadrilogy. It adds to the whole pathos. Um, the inclusion of Newt in this particular movie. Yeah, and it definitely works better in the director's cut. I still think it works fine in the theatrical, but there's a lot more there. I'm like, I really like that scene when Newt asks, like, oh, you know, like, is is the the alien going into someone? Isn't that how, like, like people come into the world? Like, the pregnancy thing. Yeah. And yeah, she yeah. asked Ripley if she had a kid. And just the way that Sigourney Weaver handles that scene, I thought that all played really well. Yeah. But the, the little girl had absolutely zero acting experience of any kind. And the reason she was basically cast and got the role is because, you know, they're casting in England. And she was like the only person who could halfway pull off an American accent. And that's pretty much how she got the role. Because none of the other child actors could do it. Now, she has American parents, to be fair. But still, um, yeah, that's how she got the role. I mean, her brother did a good job of, you know, speaking English. Or, sorry, speaking American English in his scenes. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, but um, we haven't talked about... I mean, shockingly, we really haven't discussed Sigourney Weaver at all. No, we have not, and I have no Yeah, I know. That. Just... Not that that's a bad thing, but just, like, there's so much to talk about. I'm glad that we're finally getting to yeah. it, though. Oh, man, she just fucking rocks the hell out of this movie. And, yeah, I mean, I think she's really good in that first one, but she also just took it to a whole other level with this film. And I think she, even around all these really dynamic, colorful, colorful performances, even though she's a little bit more reserved... I still think she very frequently steals the attention and kind of her presence just dominates the movie, for me at least. Okay, Eric, before before you go on, I know you have a lot to say. How is it that this character and what, surra- like, you know, the whole movement nowadays with strong female characters, what oh, works no. about go. her? I know I opened a can of worms. Yes. Because the simple answer is because she's three-dimensional and fully formed Ooh, interesting that's that's the real answer but the other thing is i've brought this up i think to caleb off air but you know everyone always says oh there was never any strong female characters except for ripley and sarah connor and Mm. princess leia they're like the token three that they all they bring up as like the only anomalies from the past you know prior to modern times but on the other two podcasts that me and Sean do, on Best Picture and 1001, both, going through all these movies from the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, everything, you cannot find a decade without tons of fully formed, strong, central, leading female types. And so I have started to say that this is all a farce whenever they go, this is the well. first this, this is the first this. No, it's not. It's just everyone has forgotten the past, except for those three iconic characters. Everyone's completely forgotten the past, and they're like memorability. Well, they're pretending like well because they haven't seen that stuff, but they're pretending yes. like it doesn't exist, and then they think they've discovered like the wheel for the first time. It's so not true. It's so like a self-created like situation. Because me and Sean just kept stumbling into these movies I'd never seen before. And I'm like, how come no one talks about this movie, Nanoshka, um, that is all about the central lead? (laughs) Well, you just answered it. (laughs) I know, but but, I mean, but like... What's Nanoshka? 
the whole movie, she's like the central person, and she's like this fully formed, strong female type going against all these male characters, and blah blah blah. That's from thirty nine, um, and like oh. nobody talks. And okay, Scarlett O'Hara is another one, but now that movie's been canceled, so you can't use her as an example anymore. Um, no, no, no. See, well, let me just interject no, let's here. Let's go with Caleb Four. Yeah, again, I've mentioned many times. It kind of annoys me a little bit that Ripley and Sarah Connor are singled out because they both came from horror franchises. That's how these these two movies started. Alien and Terminator were just variations on a slasher. And in the, among slashers, they're filled with, uh, you know, good female characters. But because these two, their sequels turn into blockbusters, when we're talking about blockbuster films, these two get sig- signaled out. Because among blockbusters, there actually aren't a huge amount of female characters strong female characters in lead roles so i think that's a different in argument. modern blockbusters in modern blockbusters these movies i'm talking about now, even i mean blockbusters didn't exist until 75 well yes correct in the modern sense but although blockbusters technically didn't exist prior to um to jaws you can't say something like retroactively like wizard of oz wasn't a blockbuster or um, Gone with the Wind, or numerous... You can't you can't say Ben-Hur wasn't a blockbuster, even though the, the moniker didn't exist. And fine, if you don't want to call it a blockbuster, fine. But there are mega mainstream movies that everybody saw. And there was tons yeah. of strong females in mega mainstream movies that everybody saw at the time. It's just many of them have been forgotten. Um, yeah, because not everyone saw them and they didn't have the same like cultural significance as yeah something like wizard of oz did everyone saw that because a lot of movies before the blockbuster model maybe didn't get to your state or your country they didn't travel around the same way the reason the blockbuster is the blockbuster is because it changed the model on releasing films so so in terms of films that everyone would have access to seeing i think that sarah connor and ripley are the two big standouts because in terms of the blockbuster realm of that model there hasn't been that many of them up until the modern era. Right, but I just, I cannot stand this. Oh, it's the first, and, you know, we're like, oh my gosh. There's just countless examples. Countless. It just, like, you know, no one, no one in modern times has seen these movies. Like, I told you about that movie, Johnny Guitar, and it's about all about, even though it's called Johnny Guitar, and there's a character named Johnny Guitar, he is so in the background of the movie. It's all about these two females that are going at it against each other. These two matriarchal females. And I'm like, what the hell? This is from 1955. And it's just, oh, man. I, I, just, oh, I just ignore it. These people, these people know not what they're talking about. That's all I can say. They, yeah, they pretend like movies were created in 75 and then that was it. They have no knowledge. Or very little. Yeah, that, that's yeah. That was what I was going to say. How what percentage of people, movie viewers in 2022, go back to movies from the 30s, or the 40s, or the 50s? Maybe some of them will go back to the 60s, 70s, but I think it's less than half that that do it. I really think that of modern movie viewers. Oh, it's less. It is absolutely less than half. So can you really blame them if they don't? I mean, maybe they shouldn't be commenting about things that they don't know, but. I just it will just can't really it's, blame them for not having seen those movies. It's a whole se- separate conversation of people who are blowhards in areas where they think they're resident experts, but they're not. 
because I am always amazed by the chutzpah of some people when whether they're talking about movies or something else. And I'm, anyway, that's a whole separate conversation. Yes, thank you, Isaac, for uh, opening up that that can of worms. Well, other than that, I have no thoughts about it. My pleasure. <laughs> I exactly no, none at all. Uh, my pleasure. I contributed absolutely nothing to this conversation. No, but they're just fully formed, three dimensional, and I love their arcs. Like having the slasher origins, like Caleb was talking about, and then seeing the progression, like it's fantastic. So yeah, that's the thing. Yeah, you very very rarely see a a final girl in a slasher movie move on to an, a sequel and have a fully developed arc in that sequel. You very, very rarely see that, so you definitely have to praise these. Uh, Halloween 2018? That's one of them. That's one of them, yeah. I don't know, I think it's done, but whatever. But do you... I mean, there was also the uh, H2O. She had an arc there, too. Yeah, but, but that's not canon. It's actually the same arc. We don't, we, don't, we, don't count, we don't count those. None of them pass the first in our canon because they all... Yeah, it doesn't. They all contradict each other. You know, no, no, no. Just Halloween is good, and then none of these sequels exist. Let's let's go with that. Yes, I mean they have their value, but no, it's uh, choose your own adventure canon. There we go. That's perfectly. Yeah, all these, you know, each of these sequels are up to your interpretation of whether they're canon or not by choose your own adventure means. Yeah, but you're right. No. Oh, another thing. No, there's another reason I want to bring up. Sure. Because another problem or fallacy with the newer leading ladies and I'm, of course i'm generalizing but no no no, no. The, the the newer the current generation of leading ladies like in action sci-fi blockbuster movies whatever another issue with them that differentiates them from ripley is that the way they make them powerful or strong or significant is they give them masculine characteristics but Ripley is not really given masculine characteristics overall. She's actually capitalizing on her feminine characteristics. And so I think that's another thing that strongly differentiates her. Because um, that's a more realistic strong woman to me. Is someone who is using her feminine ways as a strength. Rather than using male ways as a strength. Um, and that you don't, you do not see that in the modern female heroines for the for the most part. So, with that in mind, yeah. unless you're going to say something, Kev, go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say I love the fact that they emphasize her mother aspect. Yes. And her kind of yeah, wanting to be a carer. <laughs> like they do that in uh, Commando. Like I said, I recently watched that. We get all these these painfully bad scenes with Arnold and his daughter. It's like, oh, look how much of a great loving father he is. And the whole point of the movie is him trying to rescue his daughter. And it just falls completely flat. It just feels like a joke. But when Ripley goes back for Newt in this, there's a lot of really strong emotional elements there. Yes. And it's, yes. And agree 100%. And they rarely play on that with the modern heroines, like motherhood and matriarchal feelings and stuff like that. So, if that's the case, and... I'm in agreement. Let's analyze. This is not the end, but let's just analyze the scene, the iconic scene. I don't want to keep using that word iconic because it's kind of cringy. Um, the scene where she <laughs> one ask Hicks to, you know, teach her how to, uh, what is it? Teaches her how to use the pulse rifle, and then from there, eventually she grabs both the pulse rifle and a uh, flamethrower oh. from the dropship. 
and a few grenades and some flares. Oh, and boy. during the elevator sequence, you know, I love that. It's ready. <laughs> it's it's awesome. But is that her learning to become more of a marine, or just is she a survivor? It's both. Because yeah, I mean, if... because before you go, okay, I'm sorry. I just want one point out is that it's funny because remember watching the behind the scenes and the making of Aliens and you know Scorning Weaver's talking about this. <laughs> she was saying how she in the 80s, probably still now, she gave a lot of like and was spoken out of being like you know uh, anti-gun person and you know yeah. dislikes guns and whatnot. And then here's her character, you know, holding a gun. And so I was thinking about that. I was like. Well, I don't think that's actually the case. I don't think she's becoming enamored by the guns. I think she's using the guns as they are, supposed to be used as a tool for survival. Go on ahead. Yeah, and I love that scene in the elevator when she's just... Because the whole movie, that that's right in between the first and second climax, in my view. Yep. And that's like the two minutes of a break that we get. It's just her preparing for the next one and, and loading up and taking a moment to collect herself. I think that's just great. Yeah, it is. And I love that, um, like again, the remake aspect is the the first one, when she goes back for Jones the cat, she just got a little flame uh, flamethrower. Yep. In this one, she literally takes the flamethrower and just just basically tapes a machine gun to it. Like it's that much of electrical just... tapes it together. <laughs> it's freaking awesome and metal. I love it. And that's and that's funny. I didn't even think about that. That it is almost a callback to that first one. And even then, it it, it like, oh man just it shows another like not to mention but it, it, it really like shows her character development from like how terrified she was of that first alien in that first film mm-hmm. to now not not like standing i say standing up and not so much like bra- braving that's the, that's the term braving um going into the hive not even knowing about the queen yeah but that's what a mother would do you're absolutely right yeah, and there's something really tense about that scene too like going down the elevator almost feels like a descent into hell yes i think that's another really well done scene yes and discussing the scene when uh hicks teachers are how to use the gun we also haven't really mentioned that their kind of subtle romantic dynamic that develops throughout the movie okay so yeah let's talk about that well, hold on hold on I know. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. I like, sorry. I, I, I like that. I like that jumping off point. But there's still one more significant thing to say about that that you just set off when you brought it up. There's a lot of significant parts to talk about, but go ahead. Yes. <laughs> because sure. okay, so that scene, you know, he's teaching you use the gun. You know, it plays in later. All I agree with everything that everyone said. Um, but <laughs> if that same scene was made nowadays, and Hicks was like, "Okay, here, let me let me show you how to use this pulse rifle. This could be important." If this was na- in a nowadays movie, the last five years, Ripley would be like, fuck you. And then she would like toss the magazine in the air and she'd like catch it in the chamber and she would like just. Ju- That's exactly what would happen in a movie because uh... they always do that in the last five years. As soon as a male character is like, all right, let me just show you. And they go, what? They always have this reaction, like, you're mansplaining. See our predator commentary for more on that. And and then they go, and then they just, like, show how fucking badass and capable they are already. That's that's 90% of all the female characters in the last five years. Oh, I don't. I don't know about that. I completely, <laughs> completely agree, at least in the movies that we've all seen. <laughs> the only thing you can come up with is something obscure that, that mainstream audiences haven't seen in the last five years. That is what always happens. As I've been saying to, to Isaac since the start of this podcast, 
Like, blockbusters are not the way you should judge film. Blockbusters I... are... Yeah, I mean, if that's what you're going on, I mean, yeah, you're going to find Garbage. a lot of crap. But most of them are crap anyway, so... I'm just telling you, that's what happened in every... It's in every series and movie, like, of the last five, six years. As soon as the guy starts trying to explain anything, it cannot go down that way. Um, they're, they're already, like, a, a made expert every single freaking time. Oh, boy. Well, I, just on the, the relationship there. I mean, I think the first inkling of their romantic dynamic happens when Ripley after they escape and get back to their little I don't know whatever that place was their their little meeting place up in the tower the operations yeah and she's like I think what we need to do is just leave and you know uh, nuke the site from orbit oh and the APC right yeah and then Burke just goes off talking about how expensive it is and she's like they can bill me I love that line too (laughs) Um, but I think when when Hicks agrees with her that yeah that's what we're gonna do like, I think she almost becomes, like, the de facto uh, first-in-command at that point. And he starts to see her value and starts to develop some sort of uh, potentially romantic affection for them. Yes. For her. And what is it... I already have... I mean, I'm leading... I'm, this is a leading question, because I already have a bunch <laughs> of thoughts. But... And and what is it she sees about Hicks? Like, why, why is that the character she's drawn to? And, yeah, this is a leading question. Well, number one, he's the hottest person in the film by far. Michael Bean is fucking sex on a stick in this. And also, as we see in Alien 3, I mean, Ripley's just horny. She's been through a lot of trauma. She just needs to release. And uh, yeah, she settles for someone much less attractive than the beautiful uh, Michael Bean in that film. So. Oh, boy. <laughs> Understood. But why did she choose him, uh, hunky Lux aside? That film doesn't exist yet. Um, Could be just the he seems a lot more competent and respects her and yeah again i mean he's he's super hot who wouldn't be attracted to him but but you clearly have a different answer so, I, no no no, no. I, I, you're on you're on the right track oh. and i agree with that stuff but i'll take it further um and because it was done well it works in this movie what i'm about to say but hmm. if you look at all the male characters in this most of them are what nowadays we call toxic masculinity. But I'll grant that, because they are. They're designed that way. Most almost all the males in this story. Yeah. Bean or Hicks is the only one of the Marines who sort of um has any balance to his masculine mm. ways. He's the only one. And so Ripley probably recognizes that amongst all the men who she's with, because all the other men are inept in many different ways. Even one that's actually completely emasculated as well. Um, that being the lieutenant, which is another trope that is injected in here, which I mm. freaking love that trope that's in a lot of war <laughs> movies. Um, because, no, the reason I love that trope yeah. is because I've seen it in real life a million times. And so it reflects mm. like reality to me. So I love that trope. But um, You're talking about Gorman, correct? Yes. You're always an asshole, Gorman. Yes. So I love that. So all the men are either toxic masculinity or they're super flawed hicks is like the only one that's balanced at all and that's probably what draws her to him aside from his american idol looks um but then i just had another thought when i was just thinking about that right now interestingly even though she's um we understandably uh uh what's the word um you guys will think of the better word, but she has issues with Bishop, right? Understandably, because of the first movie and everything. Mm. 
distrust. Yes, but to put it lightly, but Bishop, interestingly, I just had this thought now, actually represents like the perfect male in a weird way. The idyllic could never be male. Um, like a females could make the perfect male because he's the perfect male in that he has masculine uh, traits, but he's completely in check under the, uh, the Isaac Ashimov rules of uh, synthetic beings. So he's the perfect male in that uh, he's like perfectly obedient in every way. Um, but he, but I, I just thought that was interesting. That he kinda... I don't think that's what. Uh, no, 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 no. But I think he he. I don't think that's the design that a woman would pick to uh, make a man to be. No, I think he interestingly represents the idyllic. Doesn't mean it's, it would be the best in real life, but on paper, he's the perfect male. Um, I think that's just interesting as him being the only other person who's different on the male side of things in this movie. Uh, he seems a little too much like a. Like a little bit of a limp dick. Like there's no oh flavor to him. Oh my goodness. He's like a really bland uh, vanilla ice cream or something. Like there's nothing really there. Yes. No, you're right. But from the feminine point of view, a lot of times they'll idealistically say that's the perfect man. The one who's just vanilla. Uh, and that's... You don't think that's a thing that women talk about? That's definitely not in my experience at all. Want. No, no, no. It's not who they actually marry or hook up with. But when they're just talking about it. Just like men could talk about their idyllic female, that's not who they marry in real life. But if they're, if they're just speaking like, um, like um, um, what do you call it? Jokingly? or Not jokingly, but like... As a matter of fact, offhand. Like as a mind experiment. Guys will say that, you know, oh, the perfect woman just does that. That's not who... That, they don't really mean it, really. But if they just describe it, and that's what Bishop is. What women would describe... If they're just kind of like casually talking amongst themselves, uh, <laughs> oh, it could be. Oh wait, uh, gossiping? No, uh... just talking. Again, they don't actually marry a bishop type, but just when they're just having conversation, uh, you know, the perfect man. Da da da. It's basically bishop is someone who is basically like a eunuch. What? <laughs> yeah, I'm confused. He's basically like a eunuch, because because if toxic masculinity is what you don't want then Bishop is the exact opposite of that. See, Hicks is like a balance. He, he's not completely masculine. He's not completely, completely toxic. But Bishop is the exact opposite of toxic masculinity. He's sterile masculinity. Yeah, he's sterile anything. Yeah, he's like, like I said, like a limp dick or something. Yeah. Even I really like Bishop. I'm insulting him here. but Wow, how could you? I just mean he seems like an impersonal robot. I don't think that's what anybody would really desire but <laughs> yeah in real life the woman wants the hicks type but when they're just talking freely amongst themselves they'll describe the bishop type oh but to move uh move back to the movie a little i do um i think it's really cool that cameron included her kind of phobia towards bishop i think that makes a lot of sense character wise i agree i like that but i don't feel like it ever really went anywhere i feel like it's exists in a few scenes and then she's just cool with them and then it moves on so, no, 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 no. Not, it's not just like that simple. Well, is it, what, what's the point of change? Because I was looking for it. I didn't really no, see a because point where she respect grew. Or... She's worried, but it's more silent. Um, like, for, for instance, when Bishop's going to be the one who has to, like, go repair the antenna or whatever. And mm -hmm. you, you can see that she's hesitant to put her faith in him. And remember, she was still hesitant 
because she thought he ditched her. Yeah, that's true. When she finally gets to the top of the elevator. Yes, I know it's true. (laughs) So she's doubting him the whole movie, and she is really shocked when he comes back. And he's like, "Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, you know, it was unstable." And so, <laughs> but the point the is, yard line that she had all her notions, and that she was surprised. And I think it's a perfect arc, and it's brilliant, even though it's like in the background of the rest of the movie. Well, that's fair. Yeah, I guess it plays pretty subtly. I mean, I, I thought it's. I thought a number of those scenes, she seemed like she was more comfortable than, with him than I'd expect. Um, but I like that scene where she orders him to destroy the uh, the embryos, or not embryos, the. Uh, Facehuggers. The facehuggers. Oh, yeah. And he's kind of like, oh, but Mr. Burke said very explicitly. And she looks all pissed off. And that sets up that whole cool part of the plot, which I really, really enjoy. Yes. That's not her to him, though. He's not, she's not pissed at No, Bishop. no. He's just, you know, true. I was just, uh, I was using it as a segue to move away from the oh, Bishop well, parts. Okay, well, I was going to, I was going to make quick mention that uh, Bishop oh, was sure. actually supposed to be a lot more creepy in this. Uh, for instance, <laughs> he was supposed to have these pupils that were he had like two pupils on each eye uh they had made contacts for him and Uh, there was also supposed to be there's a toy out there apparently where he has like a visor almost like uh data in a way i don't not sorry not data um um jordy yeah jordy jordy Jordy. uh and (laughs) and gorman um and then he was also supposed to be uh, pacing up and down the halls of the Sulaco as everybody woke up. So they were, he was really mm. leaning on, well, I guess either Cameron or whoever was writing the script with him was really leaning heavily on the fact like do, do not trust Bishop because you know, we, we when we saw Ash initially in the previous film, he was very, uh, well, yeah. we didn't even know he was an alien. Or, yes, sorry, which is a so robot awesome. Until the very like end of the film before he dies. This mm-hmm. is like let's start off with him being very like robotic like, and then eventually turn him into uh, a human. Yeah, and supposedly his pupils were supposed to like react and dilate crazily, like in reaction to like danger or something. Interesting. And then, oh, and then no. supposedly Cameron said that when they did tests, like with the contacts and everything, supposedly Cameron said, like, no, we can't do this because you're scarier than the xenomorphs now. <laughs> nice. Glad it worked, but um, should use that concept somewhere else. Yeah, I was going to say that it sounds like it could have been a bit of a distraction. Yeah. But no, that does sound interesting. Huh? They should have used that in uh, in Prometheus. They should have, yeah, the early androids more creepy. Oh, well, they, well, they did some. Well, again, that's what the android was doing. He was awake and pacing the whole time. Wired yeah, they sleep, yeah. and he was like looking into their dreams and stuff. Um, but then they always, but that's obviously a trope now. Where is the synthetic human or the AI gonna go bad? And now every movie plays with that, where it either actually does or it actually doesn't, and you don't know. Like, like in all these sci-fi movies, I do really do. Uh, I do enjoy um, Bishop's introduction though with the old Vietnam knife, knife trick, um, which I. <laughs> Was questioning whether he was doing it that fast or was just sped up. I'm assuming it was sped up, but like, sped up. yeah, oh, yeah, yeah Hendrickson <laughs> practiced for days and weeks with that uh, and had a lot of cuts on his hand doing it. So it was, it was just interesting when I heard him say yeah. that. But supposedly, uh, Paxson didn't know that they were going to do the hand on top of the hand thing. Oh yeah, he didn't. So, know. Oh, interesting. Yeah, and on one of the retakes, he did nick his finger, uh, Paxson's finger. Oof. Oh wow. I also lamented to Caleb when we were talking about Prey or 
the um, Predator franchise when we spoke uh, recently. <sighs> In the first AVP, uh, you know, the same actor, Hendrickson, plays Mr. Wayland. <laughs> in AVP and there's a part where he's just sitting at his desk and just for a moment he like plays with like his letter opener or something or his pen and he just real click like does these little flicks at his hand and it's just one of the many eye rolling moments of AVP (laughs) yes definitely (laughs) eye rolling (laughs) so terrible oh I was going to mention that whole hand thing too and the, the knife like that they played it really well recently in a movie that just dropped on Netflix called Darlings, this Bollywood film. Ooh. And it features a very, very abusive... It's it's almost like a dark comedy about a battered housewife. Oh, man. And, yeah, her husband, when he gets really drunk and angry, starts doing that knife thing to her hand. He's like, don't fuck with me. Oh, man. And, yeah, it's a great movie. Really well done, and you wouldn't think a movie about a topic that dark could be as funny as it is but really funny and very well done hollywood film the indians know what they're doing in in school for how many years in school k through 12 we were always doing that with our pencils like in school all yep. the time i've tried it <laughs> absolutely and um um with with non knives of course <laughs> oh and if you're never if you're still unsure anybody if if they sped it up uh, I guess watch Sergeant Apone's head um, during that scene. Yeah, he's doing some very unnatural head bobbing. I was, um, I yeah, I looked around. And I was like, yeah, it's sped up. Um, so yeah, still cool scene. Uh, what did you want to go to? You wanted to segue off of the Ripley Hicks yes. relationship into something. So please go ahead. Well, we we never really discussed that. Uh, th- this isn't my original segue, but we never really discussed the the training scene with the gun. Oh, sure. Um, I thought that. That was a nice, like, culmination of their romantic dynamic. And I thought they just played that scene really charming together. Um, it's fantastic. But, yeah, what I was really going to go off of is, uh, yeah, that scene where I, I was going to go over to Burke with his betrayal, but I can't remember how we got there. Oh, oh yeah, 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 yeah. We're talking about... Um, oh, yeah, the, yeah, yeah, the, the face huggers. Yeah. Yes, exactly, the face huggers. And then leading off onto that whole subplot. Yeah. She goes and uh, confronts Burke, and uh, what's the actor's name again? Paul Paul Reiser. Paul yes, Reiser. I think he's I think he's really good in that scene where he you can see the wheels turning in his head is once he realizes how much information Ripley's not supposed to have, like about him going and telling the people in the colony, oh maybe go and check out this area, there might be something of interest over there, and you can see the wheels turning in his head and his eyes. He's just like, oh crap, like, now I gotta get rid of this bitch. Like, how am I gonna do this? And what a creepy little fuck he is. Like, it's always fun seeing him in the background. Like, there's that scene when they're also setting up, like, the their plans for the sealing the doors and putting up the gun turrets. You can see him in the background. Like, he's just this outsider all the time. So, so I, think, I think they handled that well, too. Like, maybe on a first viewing, you wouldn't notice that he's kind of always to himself and not really a part of the group. But once you know about his betrayal, then it becomes yeah, it's a cool little thing to look out for. Rewatching the movie, it's so perfect. It's so many things that were established in this movie have been done in other movies since, um, and now that even that character's become like a trope in a way. Um, after I mean, I'm sure there was examples before this movie of characters like that, but um, uh, oh god, 
Can I say something that sounds anti-Semitic? Uh, oh no. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, um, uh, uh, I'm leaving it up to you, Isaac. You can... Yeah, yes, but like I'm trying to think. Like to our Jewish viewers, uh, I don't know exactly how to tell you to mute this because then I don't know when you're gonna mute. So unless Caleb inserts himself, but I'll I don't know what it is. And you could call it New Yorkness if you wanted to, if you want to make it less anti-Semitic. Um, but I, I don't know what it is. Maybe it's the New Yorkness. Um, but somehow, like his character just seems perfect, and it doesn't hurt in the portrayal and the delivery of the lines and everything with his character oh, that he weird. happens to be a Jewish actor. Um, and something about that when they're when they're pleading their case. Like I said, if you don't want to call it Jewishness, you can call it New Yorkness, I guess, because sometimes people get Jewishness mixed up with New Yorkness. Um, mm. But Maybe there's something, both. yeah, and there's something about that that just makes it work better in a movie, whether it's this movie or another movie. Um, and it, and there's something about that tropey character, like, like the lawyer in the original Jurassic Park, uh, and or. Now, this is the part where it's kind of like, oh, man, it's a little bit too on the nose. But I'm a proponent, and I know we're gonna, you're going to talk about it in the future. But there, there's a similar character in, in Cameron's uh, um, Avatar. And he's a little bit too on the nose, like reminiscent of this Paul Reiser character. So, yeah. you know, we can talk about that in the future. Yeah. But, but yeah. But uh, that bit... Yeah, it leads into something else when he's plotting. What do I do about Ripley? And he comes up with a pretty, pretty grody little scheme of his that leads to a brilliant scene. Um, when yeah, Ripley goes in, has her little lay down with Newt, and then he puts the face huggers in there. Ah, uh, nap time, nap time. Sorry, that sounded pretty perverse. What you said? Yes, it did sound perverse, but I understand. <laughs> sure, sorry, nap time. Sorry for my head. People who've seen the movie uh, would know what I meant. Even then, that sounds pretty creepy. So. <laughs> she goes and uh, has a. Uh, uh, she goes unconscious. Oh god, I have this is so odd. <laughs> I can't even say that. She has. She goes to sleep, and she sleeps near Newt because she does not want Newt to be uh, to to cuddle. Yeah, uh, comfort to, her. To comfort. Thank you. Yeah, comfort Newt. There we go. Yeah, and and this scene, I, I think it's a brilliant touch on Cameron's part to take that creepy design that was used more for just creep factor rather than as a genuine threat but to show that the alien even when it's in kind of this pre-alien state is still just really really tough to to fuck with like this this alien is just such a badass all around it's like an effing alaskan king crab <laughs> yeah in the movie i mean this this goes back to our meme on the podcast but it's so fucking blue throughout and i love the fact that he switches to to red during that scene i love all that oh especially when they cut the power eventually like what a great yeah. use of red. Um, but just quickly to back up, this is still part of it. Uh, when she does confront Burke about um, the face huggers and the fact that he was the one that uh, signed off on um, Newt's parents to actually explore the ship, or gave free reign for everybody to go out and find the derelict ship. Um, I remember watching it the theatrical version because that's not there because the whole like Hadley's Hope introduction isn't there I wondered if when audiences watched the theatrical cut if they thought it was a little bit too like 
uh, tell don't show with Ripley because she doesn't because she says she just checked the records and she just checked these. Is that a bit of like um, freebie almost? Is that a, is that is that a little too like much to say like she was reading the script or am I just wrong on that? Um, or are you saying that from the perspective of the theatrical cut? Yeah, from the theatrical cut where people might not like believe, or, and the fact that we didn't actually see her. Uh, look at these. Obviously, you don't need to do that because that would just be a waste yeah. of time. But is it alright with the sh- tell don't show in that can it, in that case? Um, no, I think it would work fine because coming into it, no one really know what happened, and having this reveal. Because um, in when we watched it in this version of the director's cut, it seems like it was maybe just those people, like maybe Paul Reiser had a connection, like he did. Maybe I missed it. Did it seem like the rest of the group knew about it or was it just her family so what it was uh he signed off i think for certain people to go and find to go out searching for something uh yeah. because they all as as your bud and the other guy were talking about like you know they're all looking for salvage or, or something on the rock and they've got to mm-hmm. get cleared and all that stuff and so like some big wig uh, back on Earth says like you know you can go find it. That big wig is um, uh, whatever I forgot his name. Yeah, yeah, Paul Paul Paul's character, Burke Burke. Excuse me. Yeah, Burke. Yeah. So no, I think it I think it'd be fine. It, it might even play as more of a revelation in that case uh, from the theatrical cut perspective. Okay, but, but I'm not sure. Whereas it just explains itself with the director's cut. Okay, fair enough. Thank you for. Yeah, I think it's totally fine too. Okay, but yeah. Uh, so back to your uh, what, back to what you're going with, Caleb. Sorry. So the medical lab scene. Yeah, and it, it plays as kind of a different element of horror because it's just this small little like spider-like thing crawling around. Oh man, it's fucking creepy. And when it's strangling Rip- Ripley like that, I just think it adds a a different shade of, of horror. I mean, it's not just that, but originally, again, it's it's like wanting to mouth her. It wants to violate her. It's like how how many times do I have to like you know just so much Freud like there's a lot less Freud in this in this film than in the previous film but like I, I, Alien not not so much I don't, I don't know about Terminator but like in Alien but like yeah that's like oh, the yeah. Other part with like Freudian stuff actually that's not really the case yeah I mean not even Freud wait when you say Freudian do you mean like the subtext or well Cos- come Cos- on Cos- there's, there's other no 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 I understand but I'm saying yeah there is less of that but there is more Freud in other ways. That's, that's well. Was, that's why I, I still sure. think the first film has more Freud than in this one. Yeah, but that, that, that's not in a, in a certain kind of way. Yeah, yes. there's not to say that there isn't Freud stuff. But in, sorry, continue. Yeah, we'll discuss when we do the original. But Dan O'Banion was very explicit that yeah, he th- he thought it the most horrifying thing he could think of, and the most horrifying thing he could think of was um, male oral rape. So that's what he decided to use. Yeah. That's what he said. <laughs> he's, hey, he's not wrong. Wait, 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 hold on. What is that a reference to in in the film or whatever film? Oh, that's Dan O'Banion thought of when he thought of the face hugger. That was his inspiration for the movie he was thinking about. What would be the most terrific thing he could imagine? Oh. And it was that and then a alien being impregnating him. That's interesting. I never knew that. Yes. Circa 1972. Or whatever he wrote that script. No, that that's interesting. I, I didn't know that angle before. Yeah. So, but yeah, no, I, I just think that's another uh, great scene to highlight the yeah, the kind of medical room scene, and uh, 
and yeah, <laughs> that, that's all I have. For I love, you yeah, know, I love the fact that you know she try, she and Newt try everything. She, you know, throws the bed over the face hugger. She tries to open the door. Uh, she looks for her gun. It's obviously uh, right behind the glass, which is hilarious. As he removed, well, he removed it. Yep, he did. Yep. She had it when asleep. And then she also tries to break the glass. And finally, a touch of brilliance that nobody would have thought of, and I don't know if anybody's thought of since. Like, this is probably the smartest thing I've ever thought of. And also, I have to wonder, uh, in a second, she uses her lighter to, like, you know, go right up to the, sp yep. the fire detector or the smoke detector and just, you know, sets off the sprinklers. Eric, did any of your, like, friends get, like... Um, uh, were, were any of your friends inspired to do that? Oh, because of that? I don't. I don't yeah, know. I gotta wonder if like cases of kids like with lighters starting to just go up to like smoke detectors <laughs> and be like, "Oh, look at this! this is from Aliens." No, because there was other movies that did that. I just can't think of what they were. Okay, so, fair because enough. because we def. I know that was a thing, like in school that people, no one ever actually did it, but but I know we were inspired by movies. But I don't know if it was specifically this or if it was like a combination. Because I feel like there's got to be like one other two like notable examples in other movies from back in the day, but I, I just can't think what they are right now. It's like, how is she? Like, I could see some detractors of this film saying like, "Oh, she read the script." Like, she, nobody else would have thought of that. I, I don't know, man. I feel like no, nah, she's she's thinking like she's using her noodle for that. Yes, yes, one hundred percent. She's in complete survival mode. And again, she's playing into her strengths, which is not her muscles. Yeah. If she wasn't, if she was like a hundred percent like a Mary Sue, well, then none of the Marines would be dead. Well, I, I don't know about that, but nah, that's fair. Because they all be the yeah the. But it, it, it would ruin the movie though completely if she oh, wasn't one hundred percent Mary Sue. Of course, that's with any character. Um, if they, any of them were Mary Sues, it would ruin this movie. But if there is any part where it feels like she's either reading the script or making it up, and everyone's believing her. It's when she explains about Burke's plan that she... That's exactly where I was about to go. Right after that scene. Yeah, and she's like, not only was he planning to impregnate us and put us under the, uh, you know, put us into cryo and bring these in undetected, but he was also going to sabotage all of your cryo beds and only the three of us were going to survive. And and I was like, oh, I don't know if, she's, if she knows what she's talking about that second part, but at least the first part was right. And maybe that was just to get the ire of the rest of them against him. So they'd all gonna, yeah. <laughs> I don't think it's too far-fetched. Yeah, she could be right, but she's certainly connecting some dots. We're on her side, but there's a lot of, like, far-fetchedness happening of, of her, like, grasping at straws. It's not that far-fetched. No, because obviously, was his name Burke? Um, yeah. Yeah, he, he totally represents the, you know, the ends justify the means guy. And so... Even if he didn't yeah. have that thought, he was probably like, "Damn, that's good." <laughs> like that was even yeah. if that's if his character would have been like, "Shit, yeah." Even <laughs> like, I didn't think of that. Yeah. <laughs> so either he did think of it, or he's just like, "Fuck." <laughs> yeah, and Burke is one slippery fuck. I mean, the fact yeah. that he caused all these people's death in the beginning, and then has the audacity to to go there, doesn't just feel like, "Okay, I just need to wipe all the records of this happening and move on." And I don't know if I've ever seen like a a better use of like glycerin uh, or glycerin, like in a it, like you notice how they make them, how they made them like from from that point. Oh no, it was before that part. After she confronted him, before she went to sleep, like 
the glycerin they have all over his face, and he has it for the rest of his life on screen, uh, all the way up to the end. It's over the top, but I love it. I completely love it. Yeah, he's sweating. Yeah, sh- shaking in his boots. Yeah, terrified. Oh, by the way, Caleb, I'm sorry for interrupting, but I have to point out that just just to go more on your um, the romance thing, which first I gotta mm. ask spoilers for all our other Avatar prog- our other channel. Uh, is this a better is this a better like are these hint- is their romance better hinted at than Korra and Asami? Yes. <laughs> Or developed better, I should say. No, way developed better. Um, and two, I gotta point out that when they're sealing the tunnels and whatnot and re- repairing the barricades, um, he gives her that locator. And oh, I love that. Uh, after she and then he says like, uh, after she takes it, he's like, "Doesn't mean we're engaged or anything." There's a there's <laughs> another line right there. Yeah, and I think their chemistry really works. Do you do you honestly think, man, that like? these two could like have a sustainable relationship after this movie because this is one of those things where like in the Mm -hmm. end like obviously from hicks perspective he gets the girl but we're not looking at from hicks perspective we're looking at ripley's perspective and she gets the guy can these two outside of like this traumatic experience have a serious relationship so that's that's my question Uh, Ripley is pretty damaged. I don't know. Uh, she's going to have a lot of adjustments to make when she gets home. 56, 57 years have passed. Of course. Maybe maybe a relationship wouldn't be the best thing right away. Oh, no. I, I say <laughs> completely they could, but not necessarily. I see. Care to elaborate? No. It's, it's like um, it's like if Jack survived. Oh, spoiler for Titanic. Um <laughs> Okay, maybe I'm gonna I'm gonna put a pin on that because I know you'll come back for that one. But like, let's oh yeah, yeah let's definitely. let's let's save that one. But, but it's the same situation. I would say they totally could have a future post movie, or not necessarily. Uh, I, I, it could go either way. I think there's 100 percent the possibility, but not 100 percent the surety. Yeah, of course. Yeah, and I just wanted to mention on uh, Burke again. This is my notes. Course. Did you guys notice how many times in the early s- sections of the movie that he refers to Ripley as kiddo? He does it in their first interaction that we see. And he just keeps doing it. Like he's such a condescending little prick. Like really, kiddo. It's so funny. Yeah. He calls her kiddo, kiddo when she's like 57 years his age. Right, right. Yeah. <laughs> Not obviously that, but I know there's an actual age gap. I wouldn't have noticed it, but I mean, no. But it's perfect though. Yeah. Yeah, and I also had my notes, um, we haven't mentioned much about the design of the movie, but I love the design of the base, I love their little, uh, vehicle they drive around in, I think that looks fantastic, and I still think the effects hold up really well for the, the ship flying around, I think a lot of that stuff is, feels really distinct and memorable. Something I read on one of the trivia things was, so, you know, the, the budget was considered fairly large at the time, which... It's crazy because it was an 18.5 yeah. million budget, which doesn't even sound like a lot in 1986. But anyway, but it was considered a pretty large budget that Cameron had. And supposedly, like, um, when uh, when some of the executives were seeing some of the stills and dailies during production, they were displeased because they said, what the heck? Like, it, like why'd you spend so much money on sets? Like... A lot of that money was supposed to be used on effects. And then they, supposedly they thought it was so funny when the execs said that because they said, sets? 
those aren't sets. Those were special effects. And oh wow! Because yeah, a lot of the, like the locations they thought were full size built, and they're like, no, those are those are models. Those aren't real sets. And so yeah. that's crazy. But it is really uh, <laughs> it is really convincing miniature work. Yeah, and another fun fact I learned about sets in this movie: um, the uh, it's the set where the eggs are laid, oh. I believe, uh, at the end. So this is all in Pinewood Studios. And apparently after the production ended, that set just remained there, like intact, because there was no reason to do anything with it at the time. So it remained there for some years. Um, And then when they were producing Batman 89 at Pinewood Studios, when they went into that studio, the set was largely intact, like from Aliens. And they actually redressed it and made it like the Axis Chemical oh, wow. Works um, for that movie. So that That's is awesome. a redress set of the uh, the Queen's Lair. Oh, I gotta go back and take a look at that. Wow, that cool. I know. I did, I just learned that today. I'm gonna look for it for sure the next time I go look at the Axis set. Oh, and I love the scenes of them running around in like those little uh, those little like vents that are like way too big for them, or or like tunnels, whatever that is. <laughs> yes. And everyone, when that Doctor Who episode, um, Beast Below, oh, the, the first yeah. Oot episode, everyone referenced Aliens and all the podcast discussions and commentaries on that Doctor Who two-parter. Yeah, and I, I like that uh, Cameron again utilized an idea in the original when they're walking around in there and completely does his own thing with it, but I think that's another really cool thing and I wish that they yeah, would return to this kind of thing in newer Alien movies. I think that setting really works having the aliens chase them in those kind of tunnels. I mean, it also leads to one of my favorite and most distinct uh, visuals in this movie, which is Newt down in the uh, the sewer area and the alien rising up out of the water right behind her. I think that looks just fantastic. I don't know how they got to look so good. Oh, man. <laughs> oh, yeah. I agree, 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 agree. Can I say there's a funny... In, in, in the making of, uh, there's a funny, like... There's a funny um, cut of that where you actually see like it was a failed take it's just it's it kind of ruins it a bit but you see the alien rise and then like it, there's no dialogue but the alien rises and then i guess like they cut she doesn't scream or maybe she she turns they don't scream and then they, the stuntman just like you know goes back to normal <laughs> pose it's hilarious that is funny you just imagine this like scary uh scary xenomorph and then all of a sudden you just like Hunches over like oh, okay, <laughs> back to normal. Point. Yeah, love that. Um, something something funny. I know where, I know you're gonna go somewhere with this, but um, uh, I just remembered that when Burke uh, dies by the alien, um, I remember apparently Paul Rice's mother was watching the film, eh? And apparently she was so like, like she did not like his <laughs> character, obviously. And she was, like, I think she, under her breath, was like, as soon as he got, like, axed, she, she was like, good riddance. I'm like, dang! That's awesome. That's, well, that's interesting. Sounds like she's in the movie. It's good to hear. Oh, certainly. <laughs> no, she's drinking the Kool-Aid like all of yeah, us. This was his first big movie role. He only had, like, a smaller part prior, like, in Beverly Hills Oh, my Cop. goodness. This guy should have gone on to do other great... I mean, he's... Well, he did on TV. He's, he's the... Yeah, he was the he's the bridge between Seinfeld and Friends for Pit's sakes. Yeah, kind of, sorta. <laughs> Some people like to do that. Um, but I kind of want to quickly discuss 
um, the scene that was cut shortly about when they um, when they were speculating over like you know after after uh, after Ripley puts Newt to bed, um, you know like you know the alien queen. Um, in the theatrical cut, they don't even they they cut out the whole queen bit. They just say like where are these eggs coming from, and mm. they leave it at that. They don't mm-hmm. have um, they don't have uh, what's his name. Um, hit Hudson speculate like, oh, maybe it's like an ant hive or, or an ant hill, excuse me, with the queen. Yeah, bees are in hives, dumbass. <laughs> well, no, as uh, estupido, as uh, uh, Vasquez said. But um, it was so funny because I was thinking that last night. I was like, huh, so what is running through people's minds back in 86? And then I thought of the stupid, funny image of like this the single alien that went into newt's dad's head well okay sorry we don't even know that but whatever whoever got the the, the face huggers a bunch of <laughs> a bunch of aliens or an alien went back and forth between the derelict ship and um the hadley's hope and just started bringing eggs like just start like kept bringing <laughs> eggs or maybe like abducting yes. Uh, didn't really abduct any um, uh, citizens because then they're calling us because then they would be over in the ship. But that's just funny, by the way. And I just realized as well, in the theatrical cut, we don't even see the ship. That's hilarious. They actually see the ship in this. And that's another thing. I'm surprised that we never do that in in this film where, like, Ripley goes back to the ship. Yeah. yeah. Superfluous. We didn't need to do that, obviously, but that's, that's an interesting point. Yeah. Treading old ground in a, yeah. Maybe they could have done something cool with it, but yeah. But it was just a funny image I had in my head where I'm just like, is there just an alien going back and forth, making like multiple trips, trying to like bring back? Well, they explained like how they were making that journey when they were talking about blocking them off. Oh no, 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 not that, not that part. I mean, like in '86, if you didn't know about the Queen, um, you, I was saying. Because remember, in, in Alien 1, yeah. uh, and in this one, she says the derelict ship had thousands of eggs uh, in it. So I'm just like, did she just like, did, did somebody in their head think like the, the first alien and Hadley's oh, no. Hope like, went back and forth between derelict ship and Hadley's Hope and just started bringing eggs? I think what I would have thought prior to seeing the director's cut is that someone went to the ship, came back to the colony, and then... Um, you would assume that somehow they just like spawn from there. It's unclear how, but somehow just by bringing them back to the colony, that would be enough. And I wouldn't be going to the <laughs> the thought of oh, it's going back and forth from the ship to the colony. I would just think that somehow they're able to reproduce yep. their cycle, um, just like if one alien xenomorph got to Earth, for instance, somehow it would have a way of procreating not oh let me jump on the ship and like go back to the planet and bring eggs back to earth and like be making all these round trips like no it would it would somehow um like it would genetically do whatever it had to do to like become a queen like um like how some species on earth can become hermaphrodite if they Mm. can't find a mate um i would just assume that the aliens would do something adaptive uh, with their biology that it would it would just spread one way or another. Yeah, and just uh, just on that line, um, I think it was really smart of them to cut a theatrical cut because they don't want you even thinking about the potential of a queen. They want that surprise to really hit yeah, you. Yeah, and it's amazing. Oh yeah. But in the director's cut, 
I think since it's more, you're maybe one camera was releasing it expecting you to come in having seen the other one. I think it's fun to see them speculate that feels a little bit more, uh, a little bit more real. Kind of reminds me of the thing from another world where you get scenes of them sitting around speculating. So I can appreciate that, but definitely to get the impact of the surprise the other way was the, the better way to go, I think. But because you brought up the hive thing, I want to bring up a subject that I've been sitting on this whole time uh, and been waiting to like bring up for discussion. Um, and it was a new thought I had after rewatching for this that I hadn't had before, um, which was, I think, an interesting, if you want to call us a retread, an interesting thing about this movie as compared to the first um, is that obviously in the first you had a solo alien for the most part and you had a hapless crew who was certainly not prepared for that type of situation. Um, but in this one, you get supposedly the best of what humankind at this time has to offer in this elite squad of Marines. Like, these would be humans, presumably, at their most prepared to deal with a crazy situation like this. So it's the best humanity has to offer in, in terms of military training, an elite squad, a group working together as best as humans are capable of in that type of situation. Versus, not a single alien, but obviously a hive, if you want, let's just call it that. And so you have the aliens working in unison to uh, presumably their best abilities. And so you have a clash of like um, the humans at 100% strength and the aliens at 100% strength. And you have this battle of them supposedly at their best and like who wins. And I think that's just like a fascinating thing to contemplate in this movie. I can't tell whether you're talking about this movie or the Vietnam War. Oh, boy. <laughs> oh, God. Don't get me started on that. <laughs> yeah, no, we gotta. <laughs> um, my mother was talking to me on the phone yesterday and said, you know, I remember 1975 when, you know, when, when America lost the war with Vietnam and I just bit my tongue and snapped a pencil and didn't say anything because I'm not going to have that conversation with my mother. <laughs> yeah, let's see. Yeah, let's keep it, uh, keep it focused on the, the movie there, Isaac. But what do y'all think about this, that, this thought I never had until today? Yeah. Um, no. Of like, Pitting humanity's best against aliens' best in battle royale. No, I think that's it's cool, and, and it is a big step up because that first one, they made it pretty clear that they had no real weapons; they only had tools for their ships. So, so yeah, I imagine coming in for the first time, seeing all these guys all like ready to go to battle, is probably really exciting in the theater for people. Be like, ooh, this is such an escalation. But actually, what Isaac said actually did play into a thought I had about this, though, that would make the comparison to the Vietnam War um, mm -hmm. germane. Because I was, in real time, I was thinking about it, because like I said, this is a new theory I just came upon myself today, even if other people have already thought about it before me. But the, the Vietnam example is germane because, because the humans represent, and they're obviously American, and they're American Marines of the future, they, op they obviously represent, like, human... Okay, just like in Star Trek, you got the humans and the Borg. And the humans are obviously the ones we relate most to, or Starfleet, I should say, are the ones we most closely relate to because they're humans. And the Borg are obviously, like, pure hive, right? Um, 
And I was thinking that's a good comparison for like the Vietnam War or other conflicts where you have um, an individualistic society going against a collective society. And that is very much significant if you analyze the Vietnamese War and the conflict that was going on. And strengths and weaknesses on both sides had to do with the fact that one was a very individualistic culture and one was a very collective culture. Um, and you see that play out in this because the hive does represent similar to the Borg, like the ultimate in collectiveness or group think or hive mind or whatever um, to the point where, um, and some people argue about this. Apparently I read on the internet. Some people argue about this as it pertains to this movie about they go, well, the aliens like so intelligent in the first one. Um, why would they just give themselves up as like fodder, like to the centuries? Um, and part of me thinks, well, it's because they're the ultimate mm -hmm. hive. And if you're part of the ultimate collective, your individual life doesn't matter in that. See, it's different if you're the sole survivor, but if you're part of a hive, it, it doesn't, it doesn't mean the same thing to give up your individuality as, as cannon fodder. But number two this is not in the movie, but it's like in my head canon. Because they are so intelligent, I wouldn't, because they don't show it on screen, I don't believe. They, they only um, allude to it with sound effects. I wouldn't be surprised if they only sacrifice like one alien or the first one who was dumb enough to walk into it. I wouldn't be surprised, this is head canon, that the, the xenomorphs were using that first test subject. And just like shaking it around and just like setting off the sentries without actually sacrificing more of their own. Like I could almost see them like doing that in my head cannon. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah, kind of like in uh, Requiem. Or not Requiem. <laughs> That's a terrible AVP sequel. A Resurrection. Where they're like, oh, we need to escape, but we don't have, we need some acid for blood. One of, one of us has to be sacrificed. Yep. <laughs> yep. 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 Oh, that's a great example. Yes, I forgot about that. Perfect. Yes. I like Cameron Film, though. Not talking about it. Well, it's just in Tremaine to uh, Eric's point there. But. Your point Your point remains. So I just think it's a, it's a, it, you can actually make those um, Vietnam correlations. I think it works. Yeah, and just to, just to briefly stand the Vietnam thing, um, Cameron did apologize many years after this film came out uh, about his betrayal of the Marines. He said he was mainly basing these guys off of like general infantry from vietnam movies and he was like i didn't really know the difference and i didn't realize that they were more like elite trained they wouldn't get away with this kind of shit that these guys are getting away with and he apologized for his uh, betrayal <laughs> so. well wait they would like like because they wouldn't do because oh because like an elite squad wouldn't be so yeah he said they'd be better trained they wouldn't like a hudson wouldn't exist in that environment someone who would just completely crack under pressure yes Okay, yeah, yeah, okay, 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 I get I completely get yeah, that that does make sense. True. But I will give you some artistic license. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> um like for the movie's sake. Cause it would be a different movie and it would be a lot colder if they were depicted as like true special forces. Agreed. Yeah, you, you need the actually like the more everyday type of infantry. Um, which is what you usually see in typical Vietnam yeah. movies. Uh, but just since we were talking about the egg chamber, I, I wanted to mention during, during that bit, 
I still think that scene is fantastically built visually. Um, I think that the suspense of, uh, again, how they kind of cut out the, the score, and we just hear the sound of the alien queen just breathing before we see it, just this deep breath. I think that's very ominous, and I love... And all the machines around it as well, like be buzzing and whizzing yep. and blowing out steam. And just surrounded by all the eggs, like it's not just kind of one opened egg that she's encountering. Like, uh, uh, who was it again in the, in the first one who did it? What's John Hurt's character? I don't remember his character's name, but... Kane. Thank you. Yeah, we see the one egg. Now we see a bunch of them. And yeah, I love the, the little showdown with the queen. She just starts shooting them up. And the queen's pissed as fuck. Oh man, it's amazing. <laughs> Um, so here's a, more in the, I guess, related to your question, Caleb, let's interject. What did you guys think of, I know I said this is a Cameron film, uh, but what do you guys think of the difference and, uh, yeah, the difference between the first alien in Alien and then the design that Cameron has for these mm. aliens, especially with their forehead, how that one really, like, has that almost shield dome part oh, of yeah. its face and then this one has like more not the shield and it's got i don't even know like uh, i don't know how to describe it of course but bumps in it or indents in it, excuse me in its head obviously you could almost call these like mass created uh aliens whereas like that one's the more perfect like though these you could say like these ones are like the assault yeah. drones yeah. and that one's like a sneak drone almost if that makes sense yeah, yeah, yeah. It's more of like a generic type, non-specialized. Yeah. Agreed. Whereas these are like specialized like an ant colony. Yeah, and they don't really go into it, but yeah, they, they could be designed for different purposes. And um, uh, just visually speaking, this is my yes. least favorite of the alien designs that we see out of the four original movies. Um, but I, I still think they look cool. Um, but Trust me, everybody, like since, again, this film has like done their own designs whether it's in games yeah. it's in comics it's in novels uh, it, it, everything is like they try to do everything with these with, with like a different design for it a xenoforce team. but when you see those accurate like action figure representations of like the original one like outside of the context of the movie it looks surprisingly like <laughs> tame and and boring uh and and very man-like yeah. like man in the suit when you just actually see like a, a realistic like um, figurine or model of the original alien. Yeah, and there's a few shots in the original one where you do see it, and it does just not look right. Um, it's just through clever yeah, filmmaking that they really make it look super cool and scary. Yes. Um, this one, yes. I, I don't necessarily love how they like bounce around like grasshoppers or something. There's a few shots of that that just look a little funny to me. Um, but I, I do think the head things are cool. I'll say that. Oh, man, and something that blew my mind, it was several years ago, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago, I was watching some nature documentary, I don't know if it was BBC Earth or it was on YouTube, um, it was something about sea turtles, and it was showing, in the documentary, it was showing the sea turtle, like, laying its eggs, like, like, dig like digging a pit mm -hmm. and then, like, laying its eggs, and when I saw that it looked like identical to like the queen's yeah. egg laying proboscis oh ovipositor and, thank you that's okay yeah. <laughs> ovipositor oh okay but it's like the the business end that lays the eggs on, mm -hmm. on the queen it looks like identical to like the, the real life turtle 
laying thing, and I, I was just blown away because I didn't realize that's interesting. Like how how based on real nature, like that particular thing was. It, it looks like identical, um, and they re- recreated it like really well. Yeah, I love the that part. Of I the love creature. the incredibly enormous egg sack. Like there's something about that that just kind of grody and, and cool. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's fantastic. It was like a revelation yeah. to see that. Um, and and speaking of the xenomorphs changing over time, this is, this doesn't really pertain to this particular movie, but I didn't learn till pro post Prometheus, even though it was established well before that, that I didn't know that the xenomorphs were different depending on the host hmm. creature, and I didn't realize that that. Whenever the um, the uh, what do you call it? Was it the larval stage? I don't know the one the yeah. facehugger stage. Um, that what depending on whatever creature it impregnates, the offspring takes on characteristics of the host. I did not realize that that was a thing until Prometheus, and it had been established way before Prometheus. And once I did realize that, that that's like I just thought that was super interesting. Alien Three. Yeah. Yeah, that's where they really you know, laid the groundwork for that Alien Three. Yeah, and it, it's super cool. There's so much about the, I mean, the Alien is such a fantastic movie creation. Like, it's just such a great villain, <laughs> and I wish that they would do more with that aspect. Like, I mean, uh, I guess they did some stuff with an AVP, but, <laughs> but, but I wish it would come up more in in, in this franchise, and they would could do some cool stuff with it. Because even Alien Three, as much as I really do love that film, I, it does not. They didn't get that element across very well in that. I can understand why maybe. Yeah, you wouldn't necessarily get it on a first viewing. Yeah, and another another thing that's brilliant about the Xenomorph, and uh, some of my explanations are going to be slightly controversial oh, for no. some people, but um, <laughs> I know here we go. Um, but there's a certain Canadian who is not widely accepted oh, no. by everyone. Um, but he he talks about I don't even have to name him, but he talks about a lot about when you go through myths and legends that things like dragons and um, oh that guy okay and like griffins how like the reason why they're so prominent like in all these myths and legends from all around the world is because they represent amalgams of like man's worst fears all wrapped into mm. one creature. Um, Interesting idea because because they they represent like. What is what did prehistory man like fear most like in nature? Uh, snakes, fire, big oh yeah, fire, snakes, big cats, and like certain big birds. Um, too sure, but uh, the, like the griffins and the dragons are like an amalgam of like scary reptile, big cat, and flying creature. It's like everything. It's like all the worst wrapped into one freaky creature. Um, and the xenomorphs are like the modern ver- interpretation of that. They're like all your primal fears, like wrapped into like this one creature. Because not only is it like the most efficient killer because of its physical abilities, its mental prowess, but on top of all that, it's like a rape machine too. Because like that's interesting what you said earlier, Kilik. I didn't know that thing about like that guy's worst fear was yeah, like Dan O'Bannon. Um, um yes and so it's like it's it's all your fears 
like all wrapped into like the perfect killing machine. And on top of that, the thing um, doing it looks like a fucking spider. <laughs> a spider with fingers. Oh, it's so creepy. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, it's everything. It's it's and then the way they're they're just so like um what's the word? But like 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 a like a like a um like a roach, like a, impossible to exterminate completely. Yeah. You know, that they're such like survivors and and they're like the ultimate at um adapting and adaptation like oh my god yeah and even after you kill them their blood can still still hurt you yeah perfect organism yeah yeah exactly and another thing that i love that people don't really mention a lot in these but it seems like the aliens could even fucking survive in space i mean the end of this movie and in uh the, the previous one when ripley blows out of the airlock it's still fucking wriggling around trying to fight. Like it's not, it's not even dead out there. Yeah, you would think that they would be able to survive for like a long time, even in space. No concept of morality. You would think because just like it always, you know, I used to put insects in the microwave all the time when I was younger. Oh no, that's horrible. You, you absolute <laughs> cruel person. No, but it used to always like fascinate me, like the insects that would survive and could that's not be killed in the microwave. That's God, dude. That's. Uh, I don't know if that's playing God. I don't know if it's playing God either. That's that's fair, yeah. It's playing. Maybe if we're all roaches and ants, it's playing God. But um, Man, I know, like they like come in everywhere. But like, come on, leave the little ones to do what they. It want. was science. <laughs> but, science, my arse. Well, my point is, there's so many. Yes, there's some insects that would die instantly, but there's other insects that could just like live indefinitely. I now I know now the also science. Also gross. You had to freaking like you know clean yeah, up your after microwave, there. man. That's oh. disgusting, dude. <laughs> dude, nothing was ever huge, so there was never like a massive. Even cleanup. still, man, the mess you have to clean up. That's why I don't kill things. Like the mess you have to clean up after that. That's disgusting. Well, I just don't kill them because I don't like to. Okay. Them outside, when you but... kill a spider, it's not. It's not the same thing as like killing a rodent or a hamster. I just still put them outside, but. <laughs> but uh, back back to the movie. I did want to address one other thing that's that always bothers me um and that's yeah we get this big big epic uh collision between the queen alien and ripley um and ripley we see her throughout the scene yelling at newt like oh hold on to something be careful get out of the way but when she pulls the airlock she doesn't say anything to newt no warning whatsoever yeah now it's always like ah like just 80 hour line in there I mean, Newt could just go flying past her next. I mean, she's this poor kid is not particularly. I, I mean, I guess she's competent enough, but is she? She almost flies down there. Like, yeah. So I always thought that was a weird bit. And, yeah, uh, I wonder if she knew Newt was still inside the like uh, under the uh, what is it? under the under the floorboards. Yeah, I think she was a little occupied at the moment. Uh, and then, of course, Newt saves Bishop. Uh, no, other way around during the airlock scene. Yeah, Bishop. Oh wait, yeah. Bishop saves her? Bishop saves Newt, or whatever, Rook, I don't know. <laughs> and then we get two pieces of the movie that I also don't really care for. And that's uh, Newt calling Ripley Mommy. No. Uh, it just feels a little quick, feels a little cheaply done there. And I also never loved <laughs> uh, Bishop's line. He's like, pretty good for a human. Not bad for a human. There you go, not bad for a human. Ah, uh, that dates a little bit, that feels like an 80s line. Feels like a cheap uh, audience claps moment. I'm fine with both of them. Agreed. I'm fine with both lines. Well, okay, so yeah, I, I, okay, I get your, your point of like it's too quick for you know to call her mommy, but yeah, I, yeah, no, that's that's yeah, you're right. But he's driving home. Uh, Cameron's driving home. 
what he had set up for like the whole dynamic of the whole movie and i'm okay with that true for me it feels like the movie was smart enough that you didn't need to like scream it to the rafters oh you assume <laughs> you assume you haven't talked to all the regular folks <laughs> i talk to who who don't dive deep into whatever movie they're watching. Oh, of course, because, you know, we're not regular folks. This stuff will zoom right over their heads. We're insane people, if you couldn't tell. Yeah, if, if it's not explicitly said, it'll fly right over their heads. I also have always wished that there was one more scene in this director's cut, and that's the scene of Ripley, after everyone's gone to bed, going up to, like, the controls and nuking the site from orbit. Like, I've always thought that that was a missing scene that they should have included. What? what do you mean? Well, wait, did it happen anyway? I mean, yeah, I guess it does kind of blow up, the, but not the, the ship. Blew up itself. Oh wait, the what? the other one, the alien ship. Yeah. Oh, you mean the mothership? Oh, the derelict spaceship. Okay. Yeah. I never thought of that. Yeah. Okay, that's that's a good point. That's you know that's something else. Like, well, that's I guess what I mentioned before was like, do we ever do a scene with Ripley like going to the derelict spaceship? Well, hold on. It's a good point, but. Part of me wonders: Is the derelict ship within the thirty-mile radius of the colony? That's, That's fair. Yeah, uh, because they explicitly say that the blast will have a radius of like thirty miles. So I do wonder that. Yeah, and it, we didn't need it. The movie was it wraps up in a way that feels really satisfying. I just, in my little nerd piece of my brain, I was always like, ah, oh, maybe a post-credit scene. I don't want to interrupt the flow of the end, but I feel like I want that scene. <laughs> no, you know what post-credit scene we need to see. Where the flip did that alien or the the queen lay that egg? Oh yeah, that's let's not even. Even though I love Alien Three, it does feel like a yeah rewrite, <laughs> retroactive uh, continuity. Uh, insert insertion there. Which okay, anyway. Um. <laughs> yeah, um, you remind me of some. Um, okay, so like first of all, nobody mentioned that. Um, before this movie came out, there was an unofficial sequel to Alien that was produced in Italy. I've mentioned it plenty of times throughout the channel. Yeah, the channel, not this discussion. Not, yeah. not obviously in oh, this okay. one, but yeah, not in this discussion. And they even had a spin-off comic in Europe wow. that was based... I didn't know that. Like, they continued the story of that. <laughs> and then, moving on to this, so before, after this movie came out and before Alien 3 came out, Dark Horse, you know, made, like, the official comics... Yeah. Um, that continued the story from oh, after boy. Aliens. Um, and then Alien 3 came out. But rather than say, all right, this decanonizes this comic, which is supposed to be canon, what they did to keep the Dark Horse comic canon is they republished it. And so it starred like Newt and, and Ridley and yeah, Hicks. Uh, Hicks. So they like changed Hicks's name to like wix or something <laughs> like that and they changed like newt's name to billy so that the comic could still exist in, in, in the continuity and not contradict i'd forgotten that detail that's very i fun. i really <laughs> want to do those at some point on the channel because <laughs> sure. i'm fascinated to see like that's the whole thing i was going into of like you know what happens afterwards and i've i've like like read up some stuff on the wiki she goes like 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 I'm going to call her Newt because it is, for all intents and purposes, Newt. Um, but Newt, like, goes into, like, an insane asylum and she doesn't, like, get any better. Oh, I'm wow. like, son of a gun, this is so sad. <sighs> like, this really makes me, like, almost tear up. But that's another thing. If we're talking <laughs> comics here, Eric, have you ever watched on YouTube 
because it's the only place I have ever seen it and it's never been reprinted. Have you ever seen Flip, what's it called? Newt's Dream or something like that? Newt's Dream, but it's it's oh, basically a time so. comic. I think it came out in 1989, whenever, maybe in 88. But it basically details some things that we didn't see. It's a prequel from Newt's perspective. And oh. it actually not only does the scene again with Hadley's Hope, at least with, I think, from her, Newt's perspective, uh, but we see like right. her interacting with the other children and like her with how good she is with all uh, with going in the air vents and the air ducts. Um, and we even see the scene where her dad um, wakes up and then gets the chest burster come out comes out of his chest, which I think is technically an alien queen. Just happens to be an alien queen. Could be. Um, but yeah, it's pretty. And then like from there, it pretty much jumps to we see Ripley and the Marines show up, and the it's kind of the film from there. I think. Hmm. That sounds interesting. And yeah, it's oh, and and then it ends. Oh, this is pissing me off. It ends with her on the Sulaco in hypersleep, with a freaking face hugger like right up like like wow. right above her too, which pisses me off so much. But like again, <laughs> oh wow, they did not need to include that. God damn. Yeah, no, that yeah, yeah, especially with the whole like, if we were going with Alien Three, where I remember like there was a whole autopsy with her of like, okay, let's like oh, rip open that. her rib cage to see if she was oh, freaking like you know. <laughs> infected with an embryo or not which i'm like fudge me oh, and ripley's just standing there it's so fucking grim i love that <laughs> i love that movie that's so great oh no man that was such a <sighs> fucking slap in the face no i like the movie but i have to get over that hump there's a big hump there okay so jimmy cameron does he have kids by the way i know he's got a lot of wives but yeah he kids yeah he's got some some progeny yeah Okay, just it's just weird. I'm just like wondering, like you know, all of a sudden he's a he's a guy thinking about like a mom and a, a daughter, a surrogate daughter and whatnot. So I found that interesting. If that was Gillan Hurt kind of like influencing him or not, but yeah, golly, what I know you said this like way before Caleb, but yeah, just going back to because you know we're looking at Jimmy Cameron here. It's like, man, you're absolutely right. Like, this is a guy who pretty much like has only one film like that is in his name. Mm-hmm. Not I know Prana to exist, but that's not his, and he got kicked off that. Yeah, like he's got one film, and it's already a success, uh, and then he's promoted to immediately do the sequel, and he like st- like lightning strikes twice. Like, man, how how did this happen? Like, this is it happened. I think because he had he had the talent and the vision. He had talent, but like, how come? This was a success story, and something somebody like Ryan Johnson is not. Well, now that's oh, not God. even a fair comparison. I don't on. even know what that means, really. Yeah, that's not a good comparison because because Ryan Johnson had already made several yes successful films, and he made a really good movie afterwards after the disaster, which still blows my mind. <laughs> may, may not be a disaster. Maybe for you, Isaac, you'd only really heard of Looper. Looper wasn't his first film. I think it was his fourth film. I didn't know about that. I thought it was just Brick and Looper. No, he made another great movie called uh, is it Brothers Brothers Bloom, I think it's called. Quality movie. He he had a okay. yeah a number of a string of successes that yeah okay. attracted the either producers. Yeah. For this one, uh, Walter Hill and David Geiler, they're just a little bit weird as producers. They have a weird 
attraction to people who don't have a lot of experience or are going to bring something new. Sometimes it works for them, sometimes it, it fucks them over. But in this case, it worked out fantastic for them. So. But I just think, yeah, you had the billion vision. And, I mean, did y'all read into, like, the additional challenges that he had making this movie? Yeah. With the, uh, yeah, the... With the crew. Golly, he was, uh, some people might call him a prima donna, but he and the crew, like, not, not I don't want to cast, but, like, all the crew and, like, the British actors, or British crew members, excuse me, just did not get along. He was not having it at all with them. Well, yeah. I think that there was two issues perhaps behind that. One was obviously he's American and used to American ways of production. And, I, I, I'm sorry, what now? Yeah, Canadian. But... Oh. Yes, no, you're right. You're still sorry. Right. Yeah, he's, sorry. He's used to the American, American way, ways. standard of, of, yes. of filming. Yes. So he was used to that and they had their British ways which were different. And I think that was one of the clashes according yep. to the reading. But then the other clash was that for whatever reason, and I don't know, it's, well, because I don't think they worked on the original Alien, most of them, but I think the original Alien was also produced in England. Yep. Shot in the same place, too. Yeah, it was also in Pinewood, so. Yeah. Right. So they had this, even if they didn't necessarily work on the original Alien, they had this pride of Alien being produced in England, and they and for whatever reason, they were all supposedly like just um prior to this movie they just had all the admiration in the world for ridley scott yeah um and what he had done with that movie and so it's like who's this guy who's this young guy and somebody postulated they the, the crew they probably hadn't even seen terminator yet yep so couldn't even judge that exactly that was part of the problem and then so who's this young upstart who's he and how's he gonna try to do all this and supposedly they were many were actively working against him basically like wanting him to fail um, until it all came ahead to where he basically did like the scene in the alamo well not exactly <laughs> but he basically said look i get it what look if we're gonna do this if you have issues with me just go ahead and walk away but if you decide to stay then you're signing on to do things my way and so supposedly it came down to that but also i mean he had fired the cinematographer the original one. Oh yeah um because that because he said this is what i want and the cinematographer's like no no let me show i'll show you i'll show you what you want and no and he like lit whatever like um space like um i think it was like the egg chamber like he lit it brightly when camera wanted it to be dark and so i know what this was yeah. this was the scene where so when the marines first go into the hive he really wanted all their headlamps to be the thing that only is like the only light in that scene but the cinematographer was stating no it's like use just you know other light from behind and that was what like he was completely against yeah and i know uh it caused some issues that he refused to accept any of the hr geiger designs he was like i'm not we're not going to him it's going to be all my designs i'm the director i'm the creator here and yeah people were pissed that like oh not only are you you know replacing this prestigious british director but the person who created the design of the alien that's gotten all this these accolades you think you're better and you're throwing out his designs for your own design which they thought was inferior i know that was causing issues with the studio too all that kind of james cameron classic stuff but um but and you mentioned lightning striking twice. Um, 
And I think, I mean, if you look into the future, I think the proof is in the pudding. Uh, yeah. You know, more spoilers for the for the future, but I don't really think Cameron has ever made a bad movie ever. I think he has like the highest percentage uh, of all the famous directors. He only has one movie that is like severely misunderstood. True Lies. Yeah, I don't think you're gonna say that. <laughs> That's not the one I was gonna pick. Yeah, <laughs> That's not the one I was gonna pick. He has one movie that is severely misunderstood and misconstrued. But other than, last film. But of course, I still like it, and I don't think it's that one either. <laughs> um, but I think he has the highest batting average of any of the big time directors because oh, I don't think he's ever made a bad movie ever. Certainly not. Yeah, and it's excluding Prana too, of course, and and he also has a very low number of films, which helps. Yeah. <laughs> A lot of great filmmakers, they go a little too long, and yeah, next thing you know, they're not pumping out their best work, but he's really a saver his career. Yeah, but you could say it was like Kubrick-esque as far as being selective. Yeah, that's fair. And taking their time. Um, but there are just one or two other things I wanted to mention. Uh, one of them we mentioned back in our Terminator discussion, that I always appreciated uh, James Cameron's use of reprojection. And I've always oh, thought yeah. that he has just a certain way of capturing it that's better than almost any other filmmaker that I've seen. And in this one, there's a great scene when the the, the vehicle crashes. The uh, the what are those little ships? Is, is that does that one have a name? The dropship. Um, so the, the, the dropship. The dropship, and it's in the foreground or the background. Yeah. Sorry, as they're all in the in the background or the foreground. Yes. Sorry, with the APC. Yeah, that one's a little bit more obvious, but still really well done. My favorite is there's a shot of Ripley and Newt, while the uh, the egg. Um, egg sac is exploding yep there's a fantastic use of reprojection there that i just think is one of the best uses i've seen so i always want to give him compliments for that i totally agree and when i saw those great shots and noticed them this time around the ones you mentioned but also the scene on the station when ripley's at the park um quote unquote mm -hmm. it's funny when i saw that scene and then the later rear projections that you're talking about i was just Man, he was on top of the volume before the volume, because mm. it's such a, a proto voice. I love talking about the volume <laughs> these days. I love talking about it. Like, yeah, it's so well done. It's so there was some good rear projection, like in some of the Indian original Indiana Jones movies. But, but no, you're right. It's it's so well done. It's so it's so amazing the way it's used in this movie. Yeah, and that brings me back to another one of my points. Is I think the movie overall looks incredible i watched on my blu-ray today it looks great and i was looking up on amazon i was like oh you know i'd love to see this in a uhd version but like so many cameron films in fact almost all of them except for t2 it never made it to the to the new format bum, 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 and bum, at least for bum, true lies and the abyss never made to blu-ray okay <laughs> yeah so many never made a blu-ray so many and i think supposedly the reason is because cameron usually wants to work like closely mm -hmm. with like the productions and he just doesn't ever have the time which you would think he would does have the time considering yeah. how much space he takes between movies but yeah he doesn't he's underwater most of the time what are you talking about exactly <laughs> um but yeah like because you guys mentioned abyss you know oh fuck. i want to i want to talk about that because uh, just wait wait wrong movie wrong movie <laughs> I know, but there's been rumors since the mid-aughts. Oh, Abyss is coming soon to HD Blu-ray, or it's coming... Yep. It, it, and there's rumors currently that 
supposedly it's imminent like it in the, skipped uh, a whole generation that's insane it went from it like crazy. dvd or sorry well, yeah it went from vhs to yeah, DVD DVD. just to 4k that's insane same with true yeah, lines and it was one of the first like groundbreaking like epic dvds too yeah like, when the format was relatively new yeah it was yeah, it was considered like one of the must buys that was one of the things that they would always use buy dvd yeah look at this incredible release the abyss <laughs> yeah yeah it was that in the matrix were like like the two marquee like <laughs> titles and and some of the bonds too uh like uh like tomorrow never dies and golden night like <laughs> yeah oh like yeah golden night dvd Fuck. must buys so they would open all those little warner brother uh ads look how great our studio is fucking golden eye yes but also like so i was looking at this because i have the anthology release of of these movies mm. and i keep the receipts um whenever i buy blu-rays or whatever mm. and so i was looking and I, my set looks like it's practically pristine so i thought oh maybe i purchased this like three years ago like i can't recall um and I was thumbing through it, and I had the original receipt. And I was like, yeah, what year was this? Mm, 2017? 2010. Holy smokes. Wow. wow. That's when it came out, the anthology set that I have. and Because it, it looks brand new. I mean, physically, it looks brand new. Um, and what's remarkable, besides it being from 2010, oh, my God, and I paid $89. <laughs> it wouldn't be $89 now. <laughs> it's like but, um Oh, golly, yeah. <laughs> but that was back when DVDs had a premium price especially if it was a big set anyway not only that though for a 2010 release on blu-ray this particular movie it's because even with blu-rays they didn't always take the care yeah. of restoration etc but this one does it looks like something that was released in the last three years even for a archival movie it looks like something that was released recently it does mm -hmm. not look like 2010 vintage because it's it's virtually pristine, um, so it must have been preserved well or something. Um, um, and you mentioned how, yeah, currently it's still unavailable for 4K. True. But Alien did come out on 4K already, and as as much as it's the optimum way to view it, I have issues with the 4K version um, of Alien even though it's overall the best version of the movie. Um, I, in case you want to know what the main issue is that jumped out at me when I watched it. Um, there's a lot of... Uh, I don't know if it's if you call it matte or rotoscoping, but there's a lot of like the techniques they use in Star Wars, like with the mats, where you know they, they cut out a piece... Mm -hmm. And so then there's like a small piece that's actual footage, and the other part is like a static background or mat. Yeah, compositing. Yes, compositing. Yes. And in the 4K, as pristine as Alien looks, it makes the compositing like really stand out because mm. it's like it's like in it's like in high fidelity 4K HDR. <laughs> and I was just like, could you have done something in post <laughs> to smooth that over? Oof. Because it doesn't look good when the compositing is like in like you know in such pristine like representation because you can really see like the cutouts like it's it's really really obvious and the the hdr only enhances like seeing the cutouts um so that was very distracting mm. um 
when I watched it. You have to turn your brightness down to try to hide it. But anyway, whatever. Nobody cares. Yeah, and I did have one final note before we go to final thoughts or if you guys have anything else. And this is only somewhat related to the movie. But I just have to mention, because I watched it, I don't know, maybe like three or four months ago. Um, I'm a fan of Roger Corman films. And uh, Roger, Roger Corman, after the success of Jurassic Park, rushed out a franchise called Carnosaur. And Carnosaur 2 is, just like we mentioned how this movie is kind of a, a skeleton ripoff or a remake of uh, the original Alien, Carnosaur 2 is a much more blatant remake of this movie. They just replaced the, the dinosaurs with, or replaced dinosaurs with the aliens. Or reverse. I'm a little aliens drunk. with dinosaurs. Some of the dialogue is just directly ripped. Many of the shots are directly emulated. Plot points, characters, there's a Paul Reiser equivalent. There's a Newt equivalent. Yeah, it is so blatant, it's it's incredible. Uh. Cameron should have sued, but he turns a Corman and, and who gives a fuck about some cheap Roger Corman movie. But <laughs> Man. You're just you're just reminding me of those early mid nineties like Godzilla movies and and <laughs> and the American movies they rip off. And that's what you just remind me of when you said that. Yeah, and I'll just say uh, if you enjoy uh fun crap, definitely recommend that. It was a blast, but boy it's bad. <laughs> but anyway, that was my last my last point. So if you guys have anything else or if not, then we can move to uh, final thoughts. Eric? I know, I rest. Okay, so I want to gush because, again, I'm still watching the film as we speak. The theatrical release, I'm almost sure. done. But, like, I'm not trying to, like, uh, time it out or, like, you know, keep it going just to watch finish the film. That's fine. Um, <laughs> but it's so funny that we can almost do a commentary. Like, this can almost be, like, you could put this alongside the film itself and listen to it as a commentary. We could. I just don't know how you're so behind. I know. Uh, <laughs> I paused Because I, I watched the director's cut and it finished a long time ago. <laughs> it did. Uh, I, just, I, I paused it because I had to like get my thoughts ready. Sure. Um, but anyway, I just want to gush about in the... once, like, Even in this whole film, I want to gush that Cameron does, is smart. And maybe he was, he was also smart, obviously, in Terminator, but... Obviously, there's some, as you know, or let's go over this again, like in the boardroom scene at the beginning during the, I guess, the little trial for, for Ripley, she goes like, let's go over this again, and then she does the same thing in, uh, when they're going over, like, the eggs and, like, how the aliens came to be in Hadley's Hope. Um, that's a, apparently a screenwriting rule, or just a writing rule in general, where you're never supposed to say, like, as we know, or let's go over this again, <laughs> because that just is so... <laughs> That just means like the characters have already done this, but it's just, it's a poor way of like letting the audience know yeah. of like ex exposition dump, even though it's still interesting, and engaging. Yeah, and it does. That's one of the few content or contexts where it would make sense. Of course, because for an interview, they would just make you repeat the same things over and over. Pretty much, <laughs> um, but but I love in you know the final sequence with her. Well, not the final final, but when she first encounters the alien queen, which once again I think I didn't say it, but absolutely fantastic design maybe i would have loved to see what giger would have come up with i don't know if he contacted giger or not had like but i love the little crown she has almost like this like thick triceratops type like crown that's cool i forget what it's called with the triceratops but like she has that she has giant arms and two other smaller arms i think that's cool she has like heels yep. for her feet it's just 
and her giant tail as well. It's, it's so cool. It's it's so awesome. But I love the scene, especially like once she, after she like finds Newton, she talks to her a bit. I just love how there's almost no dialogue, like like you mentioned, but that. Everything the alien queen does, unless unfortunately you are hard of hearing or auditorily impaired, um, or not even auditorily impaired, but if you're um, visually impaired, um, I love how there's almost no dialogue and Newt doesn't ask, "Hey, what's she doing?" Because when one when Ripley like you know uses her flame floor to intimidate and like first she shows it to the queen and then she aims it at an egg, I just. I love how she doesn't, like, again, she doesn't say anything. Like, there, there's there's no dialogue from that. And everything is all just, like, body language. It's just, ah, I love I love that scene even more for that. Yep, absolutely. Absolutely agree. I think all that stuff's just fantastic. And then a, f- a, funny, a funny gag, apparently, yeah, with the power loader. Uh, so it was... There's, there's a guy out there who actually created his own power loader. Obviously, it's not, you know, it's not an actual loader like it, I, I wish we had power loaders obviously for construction that'd be pretty cool but obviously we don't have it yes but it was basically a guy inside a suit and apparently there was this like balloon that they like stuck in like a certain area and then Sigourney Weaver is going in there and she's you know doing lifting or whatever with it and this guy starts pumping this like balloon up or this ball or whatever and like starts expanding right and well you can guess what area it was in because she's just like hey man like what what's going on back there are you having an erection or something oh man <laughs> just a little funny gag that, that was the case <laughs> also when uh when newt or well, well carrie i think henway is it uh when she i used to know this yeah. um when she uh when she when, when newt goes down the slide like falls down the slide <laughs> She used to just do that intentionally, and James Cameron hated that. Not hated, but she used to like peeved at that, where she would just keep like going down the slide over and over again, just because she enjoyed it, which is an absolute king kid thing to do. Um, and then also apparently, which was nice of the, uh, I guess some of the crew members, they would they warmed the water set when she was underneath the floorboards in Hadley's <laughs> Hope, uh, so that she wouldn't get cold. I think that was a nice touch. Yeah. Um, also, when, again, now I'm on the final scene, when Bishop gets cut in half, which, uh, man, I'm so sorry about that, Bishop, um, which, again, is a fake out thinking that he got impregnated. Um, I, I didn't know that Bishop, I, I wasn't in the scene where Bishop was in, was an android, so I thought that was a normal human. I was like, when I originally watched this, I was like, how is he still alive? Like, shouldn't he be dead? Because uh, he's only just like half a person now. Like his his intestines are showing, like, but they're white and weird. It's, I'm just what, what's going on here? And yeah, I didn't know he was an android until like, like like a few years later. I was like, oh okay, that makes sense. But yeah, once again, Cameron like just he just does action in di- like differently in both movies. Again, like his act like with all his shooting bits. Again, very different from Terminator. Um, where there's some quick cuts, but they work out really well, and you can even see them. Even in the scene when they're like, uh, they have the last stand inside the operations room, uh, and they're shooting again. You can pretty much see everything. There, there might be some like a lot of quick cuts, 
and quick edit, excuse me, but like, I think it works pretty well. And yeah, even, even in the, uh, even in like the, uh, what is it? Even in the, uh, dark and the red, it's, it works out really well. Mm-hmm. And then just the power lower scene again, I got a gush of just like, how did, what it, what was he even like, is he just inspired by Like, did he see like an episode of, of like, or did he watch like, what is it? Uh, mobile suit Gundam or something like that. <laughs> like a mecha show and saw like this alien fighting this because this is like the best live action mech against alien fight somebody disputed that on me when me and my cousins when me and my cousins saw this back in 87 early 87 um or it was some, i don't know if it was early 87 but it was 87 um before we saw this movie we were all we'd all seen like the transformers animated movie like 30 plus times already. Nice. Tired of seeing aliens. And so as soon as we got to that part, I said to my cousins, oh my god, it's a real life exosuit. And so we have always called the loader an exosuit ever since. Yeah, pretty much is. <laughs> oh, by the way, Caleb, this is kind of a callback to in Justice League Crisis on Two Earths, where when the Oh, crime yeah. syndicate shows up in the watchtower in our in you know prime continuity um batman goes into that um power loader do you remember that no no i don't okay yeah it's just funny that we finally come full circle on that <laughs> yeah it's been a while since we watched that one oh but do, do, do you feel like we've arrived at the uh the rating in the the final thoughts section do we break do we rate it last time? I really, I don't even know. If, I, I I don't even remember. I think I just said like you know watch it. Um, but yeah, I don't I don't know, man. Like I don't know what else there is. Like I want to keep gushing about stuff, but really at the end of the day, like you know, was this great for Jim Cameron? Like yes, like this was absolutely once again like I think him proving himself to everybody. Like that's the thing. I think with like, especially with the the British crew. He certainly like had a chip on his shoulder. Uh, again, I guess maybe to prove himself that he actually was a competent director, and he had to act not so nice to some people while it demanded to be in charge or whatnot. So yeah, I, I get it. I mean, it is what it is. And it's funny, like you know, even Sigourney Weaver was not sold on this um, from the beginning. She didn't really want to return to this franchise or reprise this role. She wasn't impressed the first time she read the script. Um, she had to be convinced and then this movie picked up like I don't know five or six Oscar nominations one like two in the categories of like effects visual effects and and like sound um, and another thing that caught people's attention even though she didn't win she was nominated um, for best actress and it was really significant because the Oscars generally didn't nominate people for best actor or actress mm. for films in the sci-fi genre or action genre. So it wasn't just the female thing. It was the fact that it was in this genre of a movie that was just like unheard of at the time. Um, so yeah, it worked out. 
Yeah, and I think she deserved it. I thought she was really, really standout in this one. Hundred percent. I don't. I didn't look up who won instead, but yeah, hundred <laughs> percent. Well, she deserved. And it was the highest grossing movie of '86. Wow. Sorry, Transformers. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's okay. Oh, but the rating, uh, and I guess final thoughts, starting with Eric, and we do it a five. Final thoughts. Yeah, it's. It's funny because on the Letterboxd app, I gave it four and a half to myself the other day. But honestly, it's a five-star movie, as I've explained many times to what five-star means to me. I've explained to Caleb, I've explained to Sean, um, that even if I give this five and something else five, it doesn't mean they're equally brilliant but or a classic. But it's a classic. There's no way around it. It's a It's a essentially perfect movie um delivers much more than it needs to to be a perfectly excellent movie um it's groundbreaking it uh it 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 is it's one of those movies that um had such an effect on movie making after the fact there's so many tropes and references that were spawned or put in people's consciousness because of this movie that would come out later in other works. Um, like, it's... There's nothing to say about it other than that. Um, let's see. Uh, with with Rotten Tomatoes, who I know sponsors your show. Um, <laughs> oh, no. They do? With the critics, Aliens gets a 98%. That's an ongoing gag I have on my podcast. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's a 98% with the critics. It's a 94% with the audience. Mm-hmm. Um, and the little blurb says, While Alien was a marvel of slow-building atmospheric tension, Aliens packs a much more visceral punch and features a typically strong performance from Sigourney Weaver. Hmm. Oh, oh yeah. And I forgot to mention, some of the score uh, that was cut out and whatever, uh, some of the cues that didn't get used, um, were reused in Die Hard. Some of James James Horner's Frankenstein oh. uh, score was reused in Die Hard. We didn't talk about that when we did uh, Die Hard last Christmas. Whoops. Oh, I don't remember. I didn't. I didn't know that until today. <laughs> yeah, and I guess I'll jump the line and go next. I agree. This is definitely a five. Um, just spoilers for my my at least my previous before this retrospective thoughts. I've always thought this was James Cameron's all around best effort as a director. I think it's his sharpest. The, maybe the leanest in his uh, director's or the theatrical cut um, he, I feel like often in his later films he starts to meander a little bit too much in areas but this is so just direct and his grasp of just straight visceral action I think is fantastic in this it really does have me on the just like captured by it so, so yeah highest rating yeah five is definitely I think this will be among his best when we get to the end but to you, Isaac. So, I can't... I would just be repeating myself, or repeating what they said. Jim, James, Jim, Jimmy, James. <laughs> Jimmy boy. You're not gonna... Yeah. <laughs> Jimmy Jimmy the Grape. Um, you are not listening to this. You'll never... You're never going to... <laughs> hey, what? But Come on. I do hope <laughs> that... I think... He, you, he has probably been, like, hunted by fans. And I'm probably one of them, although I 
probably be careful. Hunted? Oh, no, I don't know. Hunted by fans for demanded to make a sequel to this film. Like, why haven't you made a sequel to this film? Like, what's the deal here? You make a sequel to Terminator 2, but you never have made a sequel to this. Now, obviously, that's because, well, it's not his property, of course, but you, you would think that because, you know, he, like, basically made this film and the franchise itself continued to exist, that he would be given, given another shot. And I have always uh. asked myself, hey, I would love to have seen another film by him in this Aliens world and still continue on. with Alien 3 didn't even have to be with Ripley. It could have been with somebody else. Obviously, you couldn't do that. But it would have been really cool to have seen like, what he would have done with Hicks and Newt and what was left of Bishop uh, and, and Ripley if they would have just not even been an Alien film. I don't know. What I'm basically getting at is I hope that Avatar 2, James Cameron's Avatar 2, <laughs> is that film. Is that film that we finally get where it's a spiritual successor of an alien sequel, Aliens sequel, that has uh, Newt, uh, Ripley, and Hicks all as a family together. That's my hope. Because yeah, this is this gets like wow. a six out of five for me. Because oh wow, yeah, I've I've like I've watched it so oh, many no. years, and <laughs> I listened to the commentaries. I'm just I've never given anything on six before. Yeah, no, but, this is like just so much fun for me. Yeah, I gotta mention this. This is hilarious. So Isaac's breaking the five scale, and then on our Kubrick series, Eric recently broke the the five scale too. Oh my. By giving it a point. I think he gave you like a 5.1 well, for Lolita or something like that. Because I said basically every movie that Kubrick ever made, Lolita and onward, they're all fives. But I don't rank them all like equally great. Yeah. So I said there should be like 5.1s, 5.4s, 5.3s. Um, but they're all fives. As a podcast that never rated anything until Eric came on, already the scale is completely broken. But, but a six—that's bold. Like, <laughs> That—that just seems like oh, yeah. Crap. Like, this is not. I get it. It's different from Terminator, and it's just funny how his original property and this would tie together with you know Alien versus Predator versus the Terminator one day. Like wow. that's well, there you go. That's yes. metal as flip. Yes, there you go. Now I need to mention what I was going to interject during Isaac's final thoughts. So Isaac, you asked, why didn't James Cameron ever make a, a sequel to this movie? Why didn't he make another Aliens movie? Well, he wanted to, and he got the green light to do it back in 2002, I think it was, or maybe 2001. Wow. Okay. And as the, uh, the project was developing, a certain movie called uh, Freddy vs. Jason came out, and it made a whole bucket load of money. Oh no. And yes, that's at 20th Century Fox. They're like, holy shit, we gotta ride this wagon. Uh, James Cameron, by the way, Ridley Scott was also, um, had a, had a, approved the project and had talked to James Cameron about some ideas he wanted to Ooh, have explored. Cool. But the studio threw that all away to give us AVP. <laughs> it was greenlit. Uh, James Cameron was working on it and they just toss in the trash just for fucking AVP. Oh, no. 
Yeah, so so there you go, your your hopes, all of our all the people would have loved to see that. Probably never gonna happen now, thanks to yeah. Hackery. And, and if if the teaser trailers are anything to go by, eh, maybe you'll get your wish or maybe you'll regret your wish um once we actually see Avatar 2. Yeah, of course. That's just me speculating right now. But yeah, but the thing is you know they've already greenlit Avatar three and four and everything, um, so mm-hmm. who supposedly it's going to go further places as that franchise continues. But you know we'll see. Yeah, and we'll definitely discuss more of that. And Eric, if you're interested in discussing the Abyss, which is our next one, I'm sure we'd be happy to uh, have you. But uh... of course I am. Of course, I just wish the damn HD or 4K version would come out. Yeah. For that discussion. <laughs> Yeah, that'd be really nice, but but it won't. All of a sudden, <laughs> tomorrow it just like gets announced. It's like, what are the odds? It's happened a lot with podcasts I've done that it comes out like six months later. Although that's the problem is that we're not gonna. Unfortunately, we're not gonna miss that deadline because we we have to adhere to like the Avatar two release. Yeah, yeah. And I keep hoping that um, one day the uh, the men's suits with the pop collars will become an actual thing in real life. I keep waiting. Oh my goodness, yeah, we didn't talk about that. Not that it matters, but yeah. For that to happen one day. <laughs> well, we're, we're going to return again very soon to do The Abyss, so definitely looking forward to discussing some more Cameron. And uh, sorry to cut you off there, Eric, but we got a time schedule, I got that. <laughs> it's wanna... okay, as, as it's obvious from this runtime. Yeah. <laughs> what, Isaac, do you have uh, any closing words for us today? or? Yeah, I do. What happened to the hamsters? Is is an actual question? Uh, yeah, what happened to the hamsters? Vaporized. Oh, oh no! Wow. Then I like the theatrical run better because what we didn't realize is uh, Bishop saved them. He oh. put them in his, his his pant pockets. Oh, oops. Oh well, that's still technically on the ship. They just have to find them. Yeah. What was the name of the colony again? Hadley's Hope. Had Hadley's Hope. Hadley's Hope. Yeah. What many don't know, there was a little. Uh, spinoff that that didn't really receive much uh, play that was called Secret of Hadley's Hope where the xenomorph actually impregnated like a hamster. Oh no. And there was a hamster (laughs) adventure where this group of hamsters had to survive these little hamster xenomorphs that chased them around (laughs) and it's it's a long story I can't get into it right now. Sounds like it'd be the Lego version. (laughs) Oh golly. Oh and and one not the this is a joke that has like been been dead, resurrected, and just like dead over uh, millennia. Eat dirt, colonial marines. You're not canon, and I don't care. The whole site would have been vaporized. Flip that. That the structure was somehow sound. My arse. Get out of here. Oh, the game. The game. I was yeah. so confused what you're talking about for a Eat moment there. Dirt aliens, colonial marines. Yeah, I don't remember that game. I played it. I don't. I don't think I played it to completion. But they're just like, oh yeah, the game, like, or the freaking Hadley's Hope, like, structure survived, and the freaking atmospheric processing station also survived. Ugh, ah. Still there on the planet. Oh, and guess what? Hicks is alive as well. Ugh. Ah, it's just an excuse for a game. You know, there was a scene that was cut. I don't even know if it was shot, but there was a shot. Uh, there was a cut where Burke actually was still in the. Um, what is it? He was still in the cocoon area. And Ripley gave him like a grenade to blow himself off or blow himself up. Oh wow, yeah. that's an, that's interesting. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. For for a short while, me and Sean and Steve would be playing um, 
uh, was it um, Dead by Day? Wait, Dead oh, by yeah. Daylight. Yeah, Dead by Daylight. Uh, and then Steve was like, "Hey, do um, you guys want to try this, this other game that just came out? Fire Team, uh, Alien, yeah, Fire Team Elite." So we all purchased it and we all started playing it individually. We never ended up playing it together, but um, <laughs> but Sean was just like, "Oh my God, there's just it's kind of a cool game if you're into like a shooter type game." But Sean was like, "Oh my God, the, the game is like way too freaky and there's just way too much shit going on." Oh, cool! So just like shooting the aliens it was it was too much for him like he couldn't do it it was just like it was just like so frenetic and so much going on and since isaac brought this up i did actually did just downloaded that game about three days ago i've not tried it yet um but it was on uh xbox game pass so i was like i I play all the alien games i'll try this one it's i play a little it's cool the graphics are amazing it just it gets a little bit repetitive at least in the early stages and i didn't go much past that yeah that's what happened to the colonial marines it got really repetitive yeah oh wait can i see something i think i figured it out caleb i figured out something okay then because this <laughs> sure this 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 series also kind of inspired survival horror right i know almost a perfect way you can make like another the next like aliens game you take a lot of stuff directly from the resident evil remakes and like oh. third person like think about that you have yeah. giant monsters you have to fight. You have, like, Mr. X and Nemi that you have to, like, take on. And they can take, like, their tanks. And there's other creatures that you have to take on. How is that not, like, Aliens? Like, oh my oh. goodness, Aliens can just take that Resident Evil remake formula and then just apply it to Aliens. No, yeah, that, that could work. Could definitely it work. It makes so much sense. It really could. That's how you make it. You just don't make it first person. I mean, you can make it first person if you want to, but I think it's probably... It, might, it can go either way. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, thank you, uh, Isaac and Eric, for, for coming on for this very long edition uh, to match a fairly long uh, film. And uh, very excited to be continuing this James Cameron series that's been going quite well uh, so far. So very excited for the abyss. And, uh, and peace. Peace.